Our new partner who I'm really, really excited to announce we are working with. Super, super stoked. Thank you, Angie Huberman, for this connect. It's incredible. Uh, AG1 Athletic Greens. I've been using them for a while. I have them every morning on an empty stomach. Basically, take one scoop and you put it into a uh, cup or glass or mug of eight ounces of cold water. And this is all your greens for the day. You're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Every day I take this. It's so good for my digestion, my energy. It's simple. It's easy. I don't like taking a lot of vitamins. This has been really, really helpful for me. I've had a lot of stomach issues my whole life, and ever since I've been gluten-free and taking the AG1s, it's really helped me in my stomach in the mornings. I love it, and I'm so psyched that they're part of the One Life One Chance podcast. I'm sure a lot of people don't like eating greens, let alone drinking your greens, but I can tell you straight up, it's got a mild tropical taste, and the taste is actually really refreshing, and I really look forward to it each morning. Don't, don't think it's just going to be just straight bland. Um, it tastes really, really good, um, and it's good for you, so remember that. This one blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's incredible. Just one scoop, especially for musicians who are vegans or just musicians in general who want to get those daily greens. You can get the packets. It's incredible. I just gave some to my friend Derek from Sepultura. He traveled the whole entire world this summer, and he had, he had those every single day. He said it saved him. I bring AG1s with me when I travel. It helps me stay healthy. You know the deal. If you're on tour and you are uh, a picky eater, but you need to have your greens, sometimes catering doesn't have greens. Sometimes you miss the catering. Sometimes you miss the backstage food. Sometimes it's too late after the show to go get food that you like. So if you just have a, a scoop of uh, AG1s in your hotel room before you go to bed or you're in the hotel room at night and you're starving and you want something healthy, boom, life changer. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with some convenient daily nutrition. That's all you need. One scoop in a cup every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. This is it. I'm super psyched. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit drinkag1.com slash OLLC. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This is incredible. I love it. It's just basic greens. For me personally, this has changed my life tremendously. I'm not a junk food vegan. I don't eat a lot of fake meats, so I'm strictly, strictly greens. And this has been a wonderful, wonderful new addition to my life. So once again, visit drinkag1.com slash OLLC. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Get one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Yo, yo, Liquid Death, thank you so much for hydrating all my guests, taking care of me and my family and my friends. Love your water, love your brand, love what you stand for, love what you give back to the community. If you want to learn more about Liquid Death and how it started, listen to episode 115 with the co-founder, owner, and creator of Liquid Death, Mike Cesario. Just a punk rock skateboarding kid from Delaware with a dream. It's an incredible story, incredible journey. So if you go liquiddeath.com slash Toby, you get free shipping on any items you order from liquiddeath.com. And if you want to get water, Liquid Death water, go to amazon.com. But for merchandise and other things that's not water, go to liquiddeath.com slash Toby and get free shipping. Thank you so much, Liquid Death. Death to plastic, murder your thirst, stay hydrated. You know H2O saves lives. Hang out. <clears throat> Welcome to the One Life One Chance podcast. I'm your host, Toby Morris. 
I have a very special co-host today. My brother, my father figure for 100 years, Mr. Rusty Pistachio. Thank you, Rusty. You're very welcome. I just put you on the spot like five minutes ago. <laughs> you were out here for like 24 hours. We're hanging. You had a nice day today. I'm like, okay, it's co-host. Yeah. Why I, not? I, I knew it'd be a good vibe because East Coast all together. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. We got Jersey, Jersey in the house. Yeah. Chris Gethard, thank you for being here, man. I can't tell you how much this one means to me, honestly. <laughs> well, thank you. I've heard... We'll get to that story later, but I gotta tell it will mean so much for me to be able to tell you. No, that story I know you made me emotional thinking yeah. about it. But I've heard yeah. the story from this guy named Chris Gethard for years, through all different podcasts and different stories. People would text me, they DM me, all about you, and now you're in my kitchen. So thank you for being it's here. It's the coolest. It's the coolest because it's. Uh, Can we kick it off with the story, and then we'll get into your life. Yeah, I, I, I kind of probably won't be able to get it out of my head until I tell you. the Let's story. Let's go. But it's because I have it's gonna to make me emo, but I, it's gonna make me proud that I, I don't know, it's gonna make me nice. Well, yeah. and I'm glad your listeners get to hear it too. Um, because I, I told it on Damien Abraham's podcast too, which I think is where that's where all of a sudden I turned down the punk, everybody was telling you about it. Great, that, punk. yeah, and great guy, great guy. Um, but yeah, I it, it, you guys put out the first album I was in high school, right? That was the one my friends look out for me, like yeah. family. That was the first mm-hmm. one, 96. I was in North Jersey. And, you know, I think we caught that early wave of it because as that album was spreading, we were right there in Jersey. Like it physically made its way to us. Yeah. And everybody loved it. And uh, I went and saw you guys. And I actually called my friend who brought me to the show. I had an older friend named Mike, and he was the guy who always knew where the shows were and everything. I called him today. And I wonder if you guys will remember this show because we couldn't remember. It was some town in Jersey. It was really weird that you were there. It was like Randolph, New Jersey. Okay. In my mind, it Random was, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but in my mind, it, I was like, well, I think it was in like a closed down roller skating rink. And he was like, I don't remember that. And he was like, if I remember right, they might have been filming it for a video or something. It was some mm. part of Morris County, like out there. Morris County Youth Crew. Those guys and the Bergen County Youth Crew, that was the bane of my then. goddamn existence with the <laughs> Bergen County Youth Crew guys. I was telling you guys before we started recording. No. I'm a pop punk guy. I tried to get into hardcore. I used to wear the hoodies, try to come in for afternoon shows. But then the Bergen County Youth Crew would show up at jer- shows in Jersey and just beat the shit out of all of us. Uh, and I was like, I can't uh, with these kids, man. Hell no, I can't. But so I went and saw you guys, and um, it was great. It was a great show. It was really, really great, start to finish. If I remember right, you guys played a cover of Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now by the Smiths. Oh, uh, yeah. We, yep. This we, dude from my hometown, this older punk guy named Brian Malloy, who we all know, he jumped up. I think you guys were like, who knows all the words? And he, you, and he, he jumped up and sang it with you. We were like, that's a kid from our town. Oh, wow. Singing with H2O. That's cool. Awesome. It was great. And I also became, because you guys covered the Smiths, and Jay Church covered a Smith song that I heard, and this local band from... Little Falls, New Jersey, the Lavalinas, and I became obsessed with the Smiths, so I blame you for that in part. <laughs> um, but most important is before the show, my friends brought me, and I look back, and I was a very troubled kid. And um, I would later be diagnosed with really severe depression, and it got bad. And it got bad after, like, throughout college, it was getting really bad, and I was hiding it. And a couple years after college, I finally had to tell my mom that I was suicidal and it was wow. brutal. I had to wake her up in the middle of the night and I was like, mm-hmm. mom, cause I had an incident where I wound up calling my ex-girlfriend in the middle of the night, driving home on route three in New Jersey. And I was like ranting and raving and panicking. And she was like, I've just seen this happen too many times. You got to tell your mom, mm-hmm. you need to ask for help. She was like, I'm calling your mom tomorrow. So tell her now, like now's your chance. Cause yeah. I'm telling her in the morning. How old were you again? 
at that point I was probably 23. Okay. Man. But I think when I saw you guys, that first album came out, I think I was 15 or 16. Was it like 95, 96? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was 15 going on 16. I turned 16 in, in 96. So I was, this was years before I would seek help. And I was at that show, dude. And there were a bunch of video games in the back and they were turned off. And I was just standing by them. And all my friends were doing their thing. And I was just standing by them. And I was just this kid who just lived in my own head perpetually. And I was constantly scared and freaked out and felt like something was wrong with me. And it would be years before I sought help. And I was standing back by these video games. And then I looked up and Toby from H2O is walking up to me. I was off in the corner by myself. I was avoiding people, you know? I was just in, I w I'm still to this day one of these people. There's some times where I can walk in and charm the room and then I can walk in the next day, same group of people and I will crumble and, and not know. And it's, it's the bane of my existence to this day. Mm. Side of myself. And I was just having this night where I was like, I can't talk to people. I can't be around people. Why am I here? I really liked that record. I liked the band. I had been excited for the show and I was just, but like panicking, like in a panic in my head. Mm. And um, you walked up to me and you were like, oh, the games are shut off, huh? I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. And you were like, oh, that's a bummer. I, I think they had one of the basketball games. You were like, oh, I was hoping to play that. And I knew you were like bullshitting <laughs> right away. I, could, I was like, I know. And you were just like, hey, man, everything all right with you? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And you were just like, all right, man, well, I see you. Hang in there. I hope you have a good time at the show. And it was this quick interaction but when I tell you, it was the first time another human being saw me and saw what was going on and actually took the chance to like break that social barrier of mind your own business and actually went, I can tell something's up, are you okay? When I tell you that you were the first person who ever did that for me, wow. that is not a lie. And I remember still to this day being so struck by that because H2O playing North Jersey in 96, yeah you didn't even need to come out and look at the people there's a lot of artists who don't there's a oh, lot of people who just want to stay in the green room and yeah. avoid the people and treat these people like if they paid their ten dollars great that's why they're here and i'll sit in the green room and do you have all the stuff that's on my rider where's my fruit plate yeah. <laughs> that's how most artists yeah. are yeah. and you were out there not only were you in the room when i tell you i was trying to hide in the corner yeah and you saw me Damn, dude, that I can tell you to this day, not only did that interaction like mean so much to me then, but I never forgot it. And on top of it, when I managed to become an artist myself, because I was joking with you guys before we even started recording, like I loved the first record. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm encyclopedic about H2O because yeah, I because yeah, yeah. I realized hardcore. Like I said, like the hardcore kids used to want to do the wall of death and all that stuff. Oh, right. and I was like. I can't hang at these. I can't. Yeah. And I mean, like Ensign, that's a Jersey hardcore band I yeah. loved. So I'm a million times. Lifetime, who had the pop. Yeah. Like, there's some of it I love, but I can't Vision. pretend. That so much good. Heckle. Yeah. There was a Jersey Heckle. hardcore yeah. band yeah. called Heckle. Yeah, we played they with Heckle. Smaller scale, didn't yeah. bust out as much, but Heckle, yeah, yeah. I loved them growing up. Oh, yeah. Heckle. But for yeah. me, it was more, you know, Lookout, Mutant Pop, that side of punk. That I found my place there. So I can't pretend, but I, I will tell you, when I became an artist, I have always... To this day, I never, ever, I always am like, it's about the people. And anything that gets in between me and the people, I got to slice through it and avoid it. Like any manager or agent trying to make money off of me, if they're not helping it, 
Yeah. They need to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. If there's like something I'm working on that's a written thing and somebody's trying to give me notes, I sit here, I go, are you giving me these notes to try to help? Or because you want your fingerprints on it for your ego. If, the, if mm-hmm. that's it, it's getting in between me and the people. Get out of the way. And I'm someone who almost to a certain point has self-sabotaged aspects of my career because I just do not want to participate in a system that is wrong. Yeah. And uh, that's the punk in you. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back too hard about that. But so much of it goes back to like, I don't care about any side of entertainment. That's not about connecting with real people. And I can, I can ask. That's why we loved hardcore because you could go see a band and I could go see Milo in 1983 or four selling merch at the table after the song performed for the first time in my life on you know what I mean? In Rhode yeah. Island, and I could talk to him and say, "Yo, great show!" And that's connection, like I have with you, is that we're all equal. We're just people that love this music together, and the stage doesn't mean shit. And it's, well. e- you know, what I'm saying. So that's how I got into it, and that's what inspired me with those bands. And so talking to you is just like, you're at the show. We're yes. all here together. You know what I mean? You're a fucking person. And I, I get, I, I'm a, emo- I don't want to cry in my pod, which I've done before, but I'm emotional hearing story from you face to face. Cause I've heard yeah, the story. I mean, I've been, I, you could times. tell I was looking at Rusty. I couldn't even look <laughs> you in the eye during it though, because I'm telling you, like when I say that I was a kid who like thought about killing myself all the time in high school Yeah. and you were the first person to notice it. I'm like, man, it, it, it taught me a lot about why it's still to this day, like the reason I've told the story on other podcasts is a lot of times when people ask me, like, why did you build your TV show on public access? Yeah. Or like, why do you do these certain things with fans? Or why do you structure your career in this way that to other people it doesn't make sense? That story's come up because I'm like, that to me was one of the most impactful interactions I ever had with the arts. Yeah. And yeah. if I could give that to other people, that's way more important than any other side effect of having this career. And well, I thank fuck, you for I, it deeply. Well, you're you very welcome, man. <laughs> and you don't know just talking to somebody, any person, and just acknowledging them or talking what could, what that can do for something. You know what I mean? Like I'm honored and I'm I'm proud that it's you. And I'm, I'm honest, I'm stoked to meet you and your whole career. That I just deep dive for the past couple of days, and your journey too, and um and fighting with depression the whole time too. You know, what I mean that's Chappelle Lacey. He's gonna be hanging out in here. Um, <laughs> He just told a crazy story. You can't talk unless you're on the mic. You know the rules. But a crazy story that I heard throughout my throughout my life about me meeting him when he was a kid and talking to him when he was, you know, a kid of the show. I was going through a lot of things, and I said, "You okay?" I went up to him. He was back in this back at the venue. By he's all the first person machines. that when I, I was a very very dangerously depressed person, and I had successfully hid it from everyone except Toby. Me. <laughs> the only person that was like, he saw. Well, because he's and a kid I look, in my show by himself in the back of this room. But yeah. I look back too, and I'm like. There were people in my life who were like, what's going on with you sometimes? But either because I managed to push it away or because there's that thing of like, don't, you don't talk about this stuff. Yeah, and yeah. you just clearly were like, fuck it. This kid looks visibly sad in the back of the room. And you found some excuse to come talk to me. It blew my mind. It blew my mind then, let alone it's so, now. It's so honored to meet you now. I mean, I'm sure we oh, crossed yeah. paths since, I don't know, since then, but just to have you in my kitchen. And yeah, it, your it, career it means the, the world. If all I get to do on this podcast is tell you that story, <laughs> mission accomplished. Because it meant so much to well, me. Well, I heard it loud and clear, and I'm fucking... Yeah, it's awesome. I'm just so happy that whatever was instilled in me from what I, from my peers, that I brought it to... And I just... I, bought, I just, I don't know. I will say I too. I guess I'm, I should be a, like a psychologist or something. I don't know. <laughs> then you have to you have to follow so many rules with that. Then you have I to know. obey all these rules. I'm telling I know. you. Yeah. You know. Damn. 
You got to be a free spirit. I mean, you're, not you're, to, you're a feral dog. You can't be playing. By yeah, not not to get into depression and not to get into like anxiety, which we will get into. But because we have another comedian, Chappelle Lacey, in, 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 in this room that I've seen him and his struggles because we all go through struggles. But it seems like a lot of comedians and people that make people laugh have a lot of pain and come from these hard things and depression and anxiety. I think so. I, I also worry, there's a little bit of like romanticizing of that that I worry about, of people going like, oh, the whole Chris Farley story and John Belushi story. It's like, well, whims. And I, I, but I sit here and I go, if we didn't romanticize Belushi, maybe we wouldn't have lost Farley. You know, so I worry mm. about making it too much of the, the sad, fucked up comedian. Like, yeah. to me, I'm like, no, get help. Like, there's too many people I know in comedy where you'll be at some club or in the back room of some bar after a show where you're like, you're a troubled person and you're not getting help because you think it's going to stop you from being a comedian. Like that's dangerous. Yeah. Don't do that. But also a lot of the best comedians are people where I think like they have something to say and they need those laughs because those laughs are the only thing in that whole day that makes them feel like they're connecting to another human being. Yeah. And that's me in a nutshell. Yeah. I, I, I have this like, well, for me personally, like I like if I'm depressed, I don't go on stage. I don't do. I almost have to. Yeah, see, I don't do it at all because yeah. I'm like, I, you know, because of that that thing that people think, you know, like that every comedian's like that. Not every comedian's like that, but I'm one of those ones. Like, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go up if I'm like just depressed. Like when my brother died in 2013, I just stopped doing comedy. Yeah, I bet. I was like, what, so what do you want me to do? You know, I'm like yeah. I don't feel like doing anything, and and it wasn't until you know, I figured, you know, life out or figured out my life as an individual to where I was able to get back on stage. So I'm, I'm one of those ones that I, I'll just sit back. But you do see it a lot in comedy where someone's just kind of like you can tell in their jokes. You can, That's how you can tell the, the yeah. delivery of their jokes and what they're saying. You can just see it like where you're like, damn, I wish they would just get help. Yeah. You yeah, see it, it big it bums time. It me out. And it, the tide has turned. Like, I do think people are romanticizing it less the past 10 years but mm -hmm. even it, i've been doing it 23 years and uh even in the course of my career i've seen people finally start to like every comedian there's actually a new york thing i i am not with this guy there's a shrink in new york who has like every comedian sees oh, the wow. same shrink there's one guy who sees like 15 new york comedians <laughs> oh, it's become like a whole thing that everybody talks about having a shrink now with each other wow and that's good and that's healthy and i'm into it um because it is, a, it is, comedy has a lot of dark pockets. And oh, there's yeah. even in the past few years, obviously, everybody's been hearing stories. And a lot of us knew versions of those stories for a long time. And there's more dark stories. Yeah. But a lot of it is this unchecked mental illness that we romanticize. And it's dark. It's dark. Yeah. It's dangerous. Same thing with music, though, right? Totally, man. I mean, oh, it's yeah. very therapeutic to write songs and play music and get things out through that. And, same with comedy. I'm sure it's therapeutic for you. Yeah. Talk about things and laugh about things and mm. look inside yourself. Yeah. But let's take it back to fucking the streets of West Orange, bro. There you go. A lot of people from Orange, man. Essex County, New Jersey. Yeah. 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 There's we, a lot we, of us. We were saying before, like a lot of hip hop from West Orange. I mean, Naughty by Nature, I think. I'm pretty uh, sure. They, they, they came up in East Orange. East Orange. AKA Ill Town. Ill Town. <laughs> and then, but it, fam <laughs> funnily enough, when they got successful, they bought houses in West Orange. And mm. I have a buddy who grew up in this neighborhood where one time they were playing manhunt, like hide and seek, you know? And he was like cutting through some yard, hiding in some bushes. And some guy came out and was like, 
the fuck are you doing, man? Get the fuck. And he looked up and he was like, oh, it's Vinny from Naughty by Name. We got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> he was hiding in Vinny's backyard. And I'm sure no Vinny way. was freaked out and thought it was like a stalker or something. It was just some neighborhood kid. But they were all like, oh, shit, it's Vinny. Holy shit. Yeah. Was yeah. Queen Latifah East Orange? or Queen Latifah was East Orange. Whitney Houston? I think we, Whitney Houston was Nork and East Orange. Damn. Um, but yeah, that's well, all the suburbs of Newark, which as you guys know, some, I bet you guys have been to this place. One of the first places I ever went and saw shows was my older brother and his friends used to take me to the pipeline. Pipeline, Newark, yes. Oh, yeah. And I couldn't Sketchy believe my ass. parents would let me go to that neighborhood. Sketchy neighborhood, Newark. I could oh. not believe my parents were letting me Never go that there. Place? The bodega across the street. Yeah, it was a like, bodega. You'd have somebody stand in the door and keep an eye open when you went into the bodega because you're like. You don't know what the fuck might happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went to the pipe. I missed City Gardens. City Gardens shut. My older brother and his friends got to the tail end of City Gardens. Okay. That was the legendary one. But I did oh, yeah. get to see the pipeline, which people talk about less, but was another one of these weird, just like fringe neighborhood in Jersey spots Dude, where a lot yeah. of cool shit happened. So yeah. did your brothers, you have older brothers? My old, my brothers, he was uh, three grades ahead of me. And okay. him and his older friends got me into They music. got you into the yeah punk and everything yeah the first time i ever saw live music was i was enter i was i had just graduated eighth grade i hadn't even <laughs> entered high school and my buddy mike d who i'm really tight with to this day he was my older brother's friend and he uh he was throwing a show in the basement of a church in our town it was just a few local bands and i went and it like I'll j i just never forgot that feeling i remember realizing like oh the band I liked the most, they were from Nutley. I'm like, that's like three towns away. <laughs> and I was 13 and they were all like 16 or 17. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, there's no rules. No rules. There's no man. rules in life. <laughs> like really right away, I was like, oh, we're allowed to do anything. And that's cool. Yeah. And then my, the second show I ever saw, my buddy Nick, they had a July 4th barbecue in his backyard. Um, and it was a bunch of local bands. But that one was cool. Because they got a call last minute from this band that was like, hey, we're from Florida and we're on our first tour and our show in Jersey fell through that day. Can we just play your barbecue? And it was like, yeah, of course, come through. And it was less than Jake on their first tour. Oh, my God. Uh, Holy shit. shit. Yeah, which How was cool like, was I know there's people who like to clown on Scott. I know Scott's also coming back now. But mm -hmm. to see, to be listening to a bunch of bands that were just like other North Jersey kids farting around and then less than Jake who came out of the gate so hard. So oh, hard. Man just tore up my friend's backyard <laughs> and then we're just like hanging out eating with us afterwards i remember i was so young yeah, then awesome. i had a tape of theirs that was like their demo tape that later became pezcore mm -hmm. and i was so little i remember getting shots at my pediatrician and listening to that less than jake tape because i hated getting shots i was so young i was still seeing a pediatrician wow when i saw them and that was my intro and then yeah from there it was just my whole high school experience um and, and then I went to college at Rutgers, which is New Brunswick, which, yeah. as you guys know, has always had. We played there before, too, yeah, Rutgers. Yeah. Basement the shows vision, are legendary. Division territory. Division territory. Lifetime, yeah. like lifetime. Bouncing Souls, Lifetime. That's like the, the, the Handy land Street. Of, the yep. land Handy of the Street shut down right before I got there. The, the house summer before I got that? there. Yeah, the basement show. The Melody Bar was big for us. Um, mm. Court Tavern, like a bunch of spots. But yeah, Handy Street was the basement show. That I think the guys from Ensign and Lifetime ran that. Yeah, yeah. And it shut down right as I got to college, and I was so. Uh, I'm 67 Handy Street. I knew about it. I was ready to go. Did we do one? We did one, one basement show. We might, out there? Yeah, I okay, bet. maybe. It must yeah. have, was it awesome? Yeah, I the remember. basement shows in Jersey was oh, a yeah. thing. Yeah. Like the churches and all that stuff. Jersey was really always great. To I always wondered what you. I've wanted to ask you for years, like, because in our mind, you guys were like cool and tough and from New York. 
So when you would come through and do Jersey shows, I'm like, these guys are just going to think we're like little kids and kind of pussies, man. No, man. We love those shows. It was so different. I mean, from CBGBs to like a bass Because in my mind, CB, I went to those CBs afternoon shows a few times. And I remember feeling like I was actively in danger. At I don't know how real that was. Because there's a part of me that was, was like a sheltered little Jersey kid. Yeah. So I'm sure I was overblowing it. But it also seems like it was kind of real. Yeah. yeah, and everybody's such older, and it's scarier, yeah. and it's a big city, and yeah. like, I, I, like, I love going to Jersey, playing oh, yeah. the Jersey shows, man. It must like, have been, now I'm an artist, I'm like, oh, you guys got to go do a show and then sleep in your own beds after, that's nice. Yes. Just <laughs> that alone must have, <laughs> exactly. now I yeah. get it more, but in my mind, it was you guys came through a bunch, and then the other New York band that came, oh, George Tebb used to come out a lot with Furious George, Okay. and the um, LES Stitches, Yep. Yeah. they played a bunch of Jersey shows, and mm-hmm. I was scared of all of the New York bands. Yeah. It was like, all these guys are like... Street tough, <laughs> fucking crazy people. It's and all a, a facade. I don't even know how much of it was real with any of those bands. You don't know, yeah. yeah. Did you like sick of it all and stuff like that? I liked them. Yeah, I liked them. I can't again. Can't claim I was encyclopedic, but well aware of them. You're more pop punk. More pop punk. But I, my brother's older friends loved that they had me because I was like this little baby. I didn't go. I also was a t- horrific late bloomer. Okay. I don't think I had a pube until I was like 16. I had mine till 17. Yeah. So we were. In, so you know. <laughs> Straight up, man. It was like, weird. That was. Scary. I was tripping. You, on imagine that. me going to a CB's matinee as that to be like, holy shit! I don't even have pubes. <laughs> these people hit each other with fucking bricks and stuff. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. these guys dance, Change. and it looks like they're trying to knock each other out. So I was scared. But my older brother's crew, they all loved having this like little baby face kid because they all would feed me mixtapes, and that's how I found out about everything. Was all my older brother's friends wanted me to like their mixtape the best. And then we had WFMU Radio in Jersey, too. And WSOU, too. too. And, oh, dude, nobody talks about WSOU. SOU. Oh, they yeah. fucking put us on, bro. Yeah. Dude, it's all Hardcore Seton Dave. Hall basketball. I'm still a fanatical Seton Hall basketball fan to this yeah. day. And, dude, Seton people Hall. out there don't realize. Everybody, a lot of music people know about FMU because it's like the music nerd freeform station. Mm-hmm. WSOU, it's dude. a Catholic college that for some reason Please. has this... Great punk rock, insane death, but like death, like black oh, metal shit, like 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 Scandinavian death metal shit. Like, how is this a Catholic university's radio station? It's yeah. just I didn't even know they were Catholic, <laughs> dude. It's a Catholic school. Yeah. Okay, all of their literature at the school is like WSOU does not represent what the clergy, the, the mission of the school. I don't yeah. know how it still happens, but it's like basketball and straight up grindcore and like. Dark shit. <laughs> they play. They were the first radio station to play us. I think that's yeah. awesome. I had yeah. no they idea. Really pushed us hard. Dude, SOU. Probably nobody the, talks about SOU. Probably, <laughs> probably one of the first interviews that we did. Yeah, radio interview was radio. WSU. Yeah. We had a crazy hardcore night or something. I don't know. Yeah. What was going to on. this day, if you turn on SOU, ninety percent of the time you're either going to hear a broadcast of a basketball game or just at any given point of day, it's just the heaviest shit. That's wild. Yeah. Were your parents cool about you going to shows with your brothers and knew you were safe and stuff? They were. Um, I think they liked that we had a thing to do. Um, we also, there were a couple times where I lied about going to shows where they were like, oh, sorry. It's like, you know, it'd be like there's like little, and I look back now, I'm a parent, and they'd be like, no, there's like a tropical storm that's going to hit New Jersey. You can't go see your poor guest, John Ross Bowie from Egghead. Mm. They were like the New York pop punk band that mm. used to come out, and I loved them. And they had a fanzine called Go Metric, and I was obsessed with it because okay. that comedy punk crossover mm. was real for me. Okay. And those guys used to put out this fanzine that was funny, legitimately laugh out loud funny, and I loved Egghead. They were playing a VFW home, Berkeley Heights, 
My parents were like, you can't go. There's like flooding all over the state. So we lied and they caught us. Oh, so like that was, and my brother, I was an idiot. We, they told us we were going to go to our friend Mike's house. My parents were like, just call when you get there. We forgot. Uh, and then I called from the show on a payphone in the back of the VFW. So there's bands. And you guys remember this too. Jersey, one of the cool things about Jersey that I loved was there were not enough bands and enough people in the early, when I was still, I was still young enough that like you couldn't just have an all pop punk show. Mm-hmm. I saw Ensign so many times, even though I wasn't really a hardcore kid and I came to love him because it's like, you're going to see the pop punk band and then some guy with an acoustic guitar and here's the hardcore band and here's the band you came to see. Like there, it was not enough. You couldn't support all the separate scenes. Yeah. So everybody had to team up. Yeah. And I went and saw and there was some hardcore. It might have been Heckle playing before Egghead. And I'm on the payphone. I'm like, yeah, I'm at Mike's house. She's like, okay, can you turn down the music? I'm like, ah, it's all right. I think the volume's broke. I just lied. <laughs> we got home. They were like, where'd you really go? I was like, we went to Mike's house. My brother was like, we went to a show. They were like, you're in trouble. My brother, they're like, you're in some trouble. You're in a lot more fucking trouble, oh, you little man. liar. So you're I got lied. myself into trouble with that a little bit. But overall, I think they liked it. They liked that I was finding something that, made me happy and yeah most of my friends connected to the music scene were like fundamentally good kids some of them obviously like any scene were getting in trouble or like yeah. had some family situations where they were it was not ideal but my mom always rooted for the underdog kids and mm. uh they That's were awesome. everybody was always welcome in our house but yeah there was some drinking and drugs and stuff but for suburban kids it was mostly just you know, Let It Rock Records was this store in Montclair on Bloomfield Ave. We used to get all our records there or drive down to Vintage Vinyl and Vintage Woodbridge. Vinyl. Yeah. And, uh, we played there once. Mm-hmm. Oh, the in-stores there were great. So yeah. sad. So great. That was fun. Yeah. Those those were the stores. And then, yeah, and then got to Rutgers and... What was your major? Like, what were we trying to do? Like, I wound up getting a degree in a thing called American Studies, but that was just mm-hmm. the easiest. I figured out... I, I tried to drop out at one point and my parents were like, just get a degree. My dad is a guy who like education is supremely important to him mm-hmm. um and he was like just get a degree because if you drop out i know you're not going back but i had discovered comedy it was funny because when i was at Rutgers, like handy street closed the melody bar closed and i kind of fell out with music mm. um and then i found comedy i started going to new york all the time to pursue comedy and what's funny is people give me a lot of credit as like a punk comedian and they're like oh new brunswick and I was there at the same time as like Thursday and Midtown and those bands, mm. but I was I was at that point kind of very, if I could be do if I had a free night I was trying to do comedy at that mm-hmm. point, mm. so I didn't really witness as much of that as I was there at the same time and I knew Gabe from Midtown because he had been in a band called Humble Beginnings that was yeah. a big Jersey. Shout band. out to Gabe, man, I love Gabe. He's Gabe. a dude. Yeah. I always say. That guy carried an entire generation of New Jersey pop punk shows. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was at all those shows, these smaller bands, Humble Beginnings, Lane Meyer. There was a great band from Central Jersey called Boxcar, like all these things. And so much of it was because Gabe was like a very talented, charming, charismatic, and let's face it, a handsome kid. Yeah. <laughs> like girls, you oh, could pretty much have yeah. 30 people at a show because of Gabe. Yeah. Because you were going to get a bunch of kids <laughs> who like the music and a bunch of girls who were madly in love with them. And also, let's be fair, girls who love the music as well. I'm not trying to be reductive. Yeah. yeah. But like having this dude who had such charisma. Yeah. When we were young, he brought a lot of people to shows. And we can't forget Ben from Dilemma, who's the drummer of, come on, the big Jersey Ben. 
Gaslight Anthem. Gaslight Anthem. Oh, Benny Little Horowitz. Benny used to put our shows in when he was a teenager. Great guy. And we Great call guy. him Little Ben, but he's like Little Ben, Huey. who like became big. the Gaslight Anthem drummer, who's killing big, it now. I've gotten to know him a little bit. He did most of our shows, though, That's back awesome. Then. And uh, you must also know Ricky Supporta, Gabe's brother, because he yes. put on a ton of shows, too, like the Wayne Firehouse and... Skaters World, there were some legendary shows in those spots. Yeah, but Ben was a little kid. He's like, oh, I have a contract for you. Just all, he's like, he was so awesome. He loved the core. Yeah. He's great still shows. cool, man. He's cool to I this know. day. I was on his pod. Like, he's, I'm so I was too. For him. I've done it too. Yeah, yeah. he's great. He's great. So, yeah, Jersey's getting a lot of props. It, it deserves yeah, it. Man. I had a great time. and, and uh, Yeah, great time with it. And it, You never wanted to play music? I always secretly wished I was a singer in a band. To this day, I still. I'm 43. I'm like someday maybe <laughs> I can pull it off. You could still do it. But uh, and I've had friends like when when I had my public access show, I got to bring it all back because we had, when we were on New York Public Access, we started having musical guests. Mm-hmm. And well, and and it was funny too because we had been doing our show at the Upright Citizen Brigade Theater. Yeah, that's where I start. When I was 19, I found that place, hmm. and it was in an old shutdown strip club on 22nd Street. And I walked in, and John Bowie from Egghead was the guy who you signed up for classes, and John was the guy who signed you up. I was like, "You're the bassist from Egghead." He was like, "What the fuck?" Like, That's awesome. And then yeah. I walked in, and I was like, "It just felt to me like the shows I used to go. It was same vibe." Yeah. And UCB grew and got a lot more corporate along the way. But in the early days, the reason I felt I was terrified of New York. My parents, when my parents were raising me, New York was like the Bronx was on fire. I was born mm. in 1980. My parents grew up in a time when it was like you don't go to New York. Yeah, and they would I mean they'd send us on field trips to see a Broadway show and my parents my mom would be like hold your wallet in your hand the whole time never let go of it and then <laughs> the bus would drive us through Times Square back in the 80s and I, I I showed up we'd go on field trips and we got to see the tail end of Times Square you know yeah. and like when you we were kids we'd sneak into the city you'd take a bus to Port Authority I think to this day Port Authority is the one place in Manhattan Giuliani just forgot. Yeah, oh, Giuliani still, forgot to get to Port Authority. It's still, dude, my Sketchy. friend Mike, who I keep mentioning, he wants legendary story in Art Gang. He wants. Where's your gang called? He had a fanzine called Marsha, and yeah. that was pretty popular in North Jersey. So we're the Marsha. Everybody knew us as the Marsha crew, Sick. they would call us. And uh, named after Marsha from the Brady Bunch because he was in love with her. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And my friend, his little brother actually, he told me your, his little brother, befriend, you, you befriended him. His little brother was this kid named Fran Dolan, and he said you used to interact. My, my buddy Fran knew everything about hardcore and was a real record collector, collector nerd. And okay. he was buddies with like the guy who ran Mutant Pop out on the West Coast. And he said, Mike D, my buddy Mike, was like, Fran and Toby were like, they interacted a bunch. They knew each other. Hmm. Like, Dolan. Dolan. It sounds like Bill Dolan was different. Yeah, real skinny. But yeah, so... Um, um, yeah, Mike D once snuck into... The, we would sneak into the city some... Because, you know, when we all started drinking... In the late, even up until like the early 2000s, nobody was carding you in New York. Yeah. You could get a 40 at a bodega wearing your West Orange High School varsity jacket. You know, like <laughs> my buddy did that one. He's like, I forgot to take off my jacket. And we're like, well, they didn't call the cops. Like, we're good. Um, right. But he was in Port Authority once and he had to use the bathroom. But he realized, like, I can't leave because I'll miss the last bus. And if you miss the last bus, you're going to get caught. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm going to take a shit at Port Authority. Oh, <laughs> it's like a nightmare. It's like CBs, yeah. He goes in and he's in the stall and he uh, he says he's got the door closed. Obviously, no one else is in there. And then he hears the door open. He's like, fuck. And then he hears all this screaming. And he was like, whatever the fuck's going on out there, I got to just like run past. I got, I can't stop. Shit, and he bro. said he came out and there was like a guy who's, I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of someone who's clearly got some mental issues, but he said this guy 
was like had a pair of pliers and he was pulling out his teeth. He was like doing dental work on himself wow. in the bathroom at Port Authority. That's My New buddy, York. he said he couldn't use a public restroom for like 15 years. He couldn't shit in a public bathroom <laughs> no, for years I, after that. Yeah. After that, scarred, scarred, yeah. scarred. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, what, what was what was the inspiration to start doing stand up and doing comedy? I always loved comedy growing up. My older brother. Like we grew up on a side of town where my older brother was one of these guys who just I look back at his childhood and it fucking like he got his ass handed to he got bullied really bad. And Your was, older brother, okay. Yeah, we grew up in a town that was like mostly Irish Catholic, mm. and I look back and a lot of the families there was a lot there was some drinking problem and alcoholism and stuff, and it was what it was. He got his he got it handed to him. I took it a little bit. Like we were both little late bloomer kids, and our last names spelled Get Hard. Like there was no way around it in the late eighties in North Jersey. Like we took it on the chin. Um, that was the thing. Get hard. The get hard. Oh uh, yeah, they, they that wow. didn't help. Didn't help anything. You know. Oh, you hard, motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Like oh, you fucking bone. Like constant. So, damn. My brother, like I, I actually got in a lot of fights growing up, and I was just like, if anybody even messes me, I'd, let's just get the fight over with. Wow. My brother went the opposite direction. He became very. He never wanted to fight. Mm. He would sometimes like clown on kids and stand up for himself that way. But he more so, I give him so much credit because he was like, he, I mean, he found WFMU when he was in like fifth or sixth grade. He'd sit up in his room in the attic just listening wow. to the FMU, which you think about that record, that radio station, like a kid who's 10 years old, yeah. it should go over his head, but he, yeah. and he'd order their catalog and then we'd order stuff from that. And he was listening to the Ramones when he was like 10, 11 years old. Awesome. And my parents were not music people. I don't even know how he found it. And then That's comedy too, he'd be like. He always like Andy. He showed me Andy Kaufman when I was real young, and I was obsessed with him from a young age. Amazing. He knew like New Yorkers. You guys know as New Yorkers, like Howard Stern, like all this stuff with him, like throwing baloney at strippers. We were like, who cares? But my brother was like, no, no, no. Here's why he's a genius. Like my brother was like, here's how he's like breaking radio, and like let's watch his old Channel Nine, all the Channel Nine fucking see caucus, Richard Bay show, <laughs> Richard Morgan Downey. I Dude, Downey guy, yeah. All that crate. My brother my brother loved all these weird Spanish language game shows. Uncle Floyd. All this shit my brother found that was just weird underground stuff. Cause he was like a bullied kid who I think just had to go find his identity yeah. through that. So he handed me music. He also handed me comedy. And some of it too, not to keep harping on the punk stuff, but there were bands I liked that I started to realize they are funny. And they do a lot of like there was a band called Weston, yes, pop punk band from Pennsylvania. Play with them a bunch. They were the yeah. they were the fucking kings of my high school experience. It okay. was like Spoiler it was weird because well, because for us it was like the Bouncing Souls were coming up as the big Jersey band, big band. Mm -hmm. and they were starting to get big and bust out beyond Jersey. But I was there like ninety three, ninety four. They were still just like a New Brunswick band, and then we yeah. all watched. But Weston were from Pennsylvania, and we unofficially. In Jersey, they were as beloved as the Bouncing Souls in a way. They played a ton of shows together, and those guys were fucking funny. Mm -hmm. They'd get in fights in between their songs. They'd strip down to their underwear. They'd stop. They'd have songs where they messed up and then start yelling at each other, but playfully on stage about it. And I remember I saw Weston a ton, and at a certain point I realized, I was like, I want to be in a band to tell the jokes in between the songs. Mm -hmm. That was one of the first times where I was like, the thing I get most excited about when I think about being in a band is telling the jokes in between the songs. Yeah. And then I had a teacher in high school who pulled me aside and she was like, you're kind of a wise ass. And I was like, I know. And like teachers were tired of me by my senior year. She's like, take my drama class. And I was like, I don't know about that. And I'd done the school plays and stuff because yeah. I had this inkling to me, but it was all musicals. I was like, this is not my thing. 
Um, and she made it all, she was like, she sat me down and she was like, all the other teachers are mad at you because you won't shut up. <laughs> I think you might be talented. She was like, I think it might actually just be talent. Mm. So take my class. Awesome. And she made it all improv games for me. Like that was not the usual curriculum. She made it all awesome. improv. And she's the one, te- I, I look back on some of my teachers and I still am like those fucking assholes. <laughs> A lot of them were assholes. Because I also am angry because I'm like none of them protected my brother and I never trusted any of them. Mm. You know, I never trusted a th- teacher in my life because I saw that none of them helped my brother and I just was like none of you are going to help me. I got good enough grades to get by and then I was like, me, you can, I don't need to interact with teachers. Fuck that. Mm. But this one teacher, she pulled me aside and then it was, uh, it was game on. And when I got to Rutgers, all I knew was like my college, I didn't look at how I was like, does the college have an improv group? Nowadays, every college does because improv blew up in the 2000s. Yeah. But back then, like they didn't all have them. And I Rutgers, I went and I auditioned for their improv group and I didn't get in. And then the second semester in audition didn't get in. Finally, my sophomore year, I got in. And just was like able to express myself for the first time and was able to get some validation for the first time, really. Yeah. Um, In high school, like I said, I did those musicals. And by my senior year, I was the lead. But I'm like... You were the lead? Yeah. So it was a... I I knew I liked being on stage, but I'm like, I don't think I need to like learn the choreography. Like, I know that this is not all this can be. So improv was really the first thing where I was like, I get to do it. And then I also had this thing too where I would play a lot of characters that were depressed or characters that were really angry. Mm. And I'd be getting big laughs and I'm like, I'm just saying a thing that I just actually thought yesterday. Yeah. Like that's like a thought that I had that I thought was real fucked up. And now I'm playing a character who's saying it to another character and the crowd's cheering. Mm. And I was like, oh, other people do understand. And I'm finding ways to send that message where it's not so risky. Yeah, And then after my sophomore year of college, it was kind of the only thing that was making me happy. And like I said, college was when my depression started getting very dangerous. So I was like, I don't want to stop doing comedy because it's what I have. Yeah. Now, I should have gone and gotten treatment. I went to the Rutgers. They had like a psychiatry. You could go. I went one time and I went in and I was like, how do I get an appointment? She was like, when are you free? And I turned around and walked out. That was my Mm -hmm. sophomore year. Uh I was too scared. Yeah. Because people used to, I mean, that was the thing that, Again, talking to people and stuff like that. Yeah, it was like growing up how I did. It was a tough enough vibe, especially seeing stuff in my brother that I, I it took me years to unwrap the feeling of like you can't give anybody a thing that they can use against you. Yeah. And I felt like show any weakness. She can't show weakness. Yeah. People find out I'm in therapy. That's weakness. And they have that on me. Yeah. I can't have it. And that was how we treated therapy for a long time. It's the most normal thing now. Now it's more, but well into my adult, like, yeah. like yeah. up until like 10 years ago, it felt like people didn't talk about it. So yeah, then I went and I was like, I just don't want to stop. I never saw a show at UCB. I just Googled improv. I don't even know if it was Google that it was like, Al- like Alta Vista mm-hmm. and it had a punk vibe and, and yeah. the, the, a couple of the owners have punk backgrounds and a bunch of the people participating had punk ground, backgrounds um, Bowie was in a band that I knew and that I legitimately, I mean, I had the Egghead 7-inch. I bought their awesome. album right when it came out. He played, Egghead played backing uh, music for this band called Kung Fu Monkeys and I bought it because I love, like I legitimately, and I showed up, I was like, all right. And he was like an early mentor to me for my first few years. Awesome. And uh, yeah, and then it was just never wanted to stop. Never wanted to stop. And I, I 
it's 23 years later and only now only now am i starting to figure out like maybe i should slow down and figure (laughs) some stuff out like only now so you moved to new york at that time i lived in jersey um for the first three and a half years that I would just take the train back yeah, and forth. And yeah. then I moved to Montclair. Montclair is a town in New Jersey that's like a lot of people who are going to live in the city someday or a lot of people who are coming out of the city to raise their kids. Yeah. Montclair Stephen is this Colbert. town that cro- Colbert lives there now. Uh, that's a town that like people cross over. Um, so I lived there for a year or two and then I got a job in, L- in Los Angeles. Matt Besser, who is one of the owners of the UCB, he has a punk background. I'll never forget, dude. I once went, to, I go into UCB and I was like this sh- very shy kid and it was, it was a system that was like, I was in pretty early, but there were still like these people that I looked at as rock stars who yeah. had started a couple years before, let alone the guys who owned the place. Mm. And I, I walk in one day and Jay Church was playing. And Jay Church is a band that I am obsessed with to this day. <laughs> and I feel like that band doesn't get their due. And it gets me weirdly upset because they were kind of this companion band to Jawbreaker. Mm-hmm. And Jawbreaker always sort of overshadowed them a little bit. And Jay Church put out way too many records and their quality of recordings was not consistent. And they would sometimes just fart out a split seven inch that probably they could have like held off. And, you know, like they they had that, but the good shit's great. And I walk in and Jay Church was playing and I was like, nobody listens to Jay Church, like me and four of my friends. And I looked up in the booth and Besser was in there and I was like, so, and he was kind of like an intimidating guy. And I was like, I'm so sorry to bother you. I was like, did you put this on? And he was like, yeah. I was like, this is Jay Church. He's like, you like Jay Church? So he liked me. Because <laughs> right away, he's like, dude. And, and Lance Hahn, similar to you. Dude, when I was on Friendster, <laughs> when I was on Friendster, <laughs> I had put that one of my favorite bands was Jay Church. And Lance Hahn, who was Jay Church, mm. reached out and was like, thanks so much for supporting my band. And I was like, wow. What the fuck? Like, do you just find everyone on Friendster <laughs> who likes your band? He's like, there's not that many. I can do that. And again, totally informed me with my career and then yeah moved out to los angeles lived out here for like three or four months in 2004 beginning of 2004 turned 24 out here but the comedy scene wasn't huge here yet and mm. ucb hadn't built another theater here yet and there was comedy that was like my kind of comedy but i was very green and i was like oh i'm not going to be able to get on stage for a couple of years here if i go back to new york after this job's up i'll get a lot of stage time because i've already established myself so i did that yeah. and then i moved to queens lived in astoria two years oh there before yeah woodside for six or seven greenpoint for two damn jackson heights for five we talked about jackson heights earlier that's a lot of best. hardcore legends yeah. out of queens bro <laughs> yeah i lived in the dms neighborhood they weren't around anymore i looked it up i looked it up and it was i was like reading up on my neighborhood and it was like dms was born out of jackson heights and i was oh like my God, what dude. talk about the hardcore guys who scared me you want to talk about the hardcore guys who made me a pop punk kid i was like those dudes are scary guys it scared you into pop punk scared me into yeah here scared me into look out i'm like i'm gonna go listen to the mr t experience man i can't handle this shit These guys are fucking scary man what's this servotron record push well, me into lookout record <laughs> yeah they made me love yeah but queens man a lot of me ramones so many Nas, so many amazing artists out of queen yeah. and it's still jackson Heights to this day still i feel so lucky i lived in that and that neighborhood is the most fucking amazingly diverse strange cool ass mm. neighborhood it's the best. I lived on 169th back in the in day. In Queens? 
Yeah, and Northern Boulevard is that Jackson Heights? That's yeah. way deeper. That's like Corona. With Rilla Biscuits or... in 1988. That's Corona Queen. Yeah, I live, I live there. Just that you get to say shit like that and it's real. <laughs> when I've spent my whole life with was... my nerdy punk friends <laughs> saying shit like that. It was that. me, Walter Schreifel, Siv, and Alan Cage all in one apartment. You know the story. You visited oh, me. Yeah. yeah. And there was a, there was a Burger King. We called it Murder King. <laughs> all the bands would stay with us and bleach their hair and all that shit. Yeah. That was Yeah, Gus Straight Edge. Yeah, in the 80s. Damn, so cool, man. So were you nervous? But did you go to shows in New York? Once you later on, were you just focusing on comedy? Were you going to shows? I was focused still? on comedy a lot, and then everything started to get really moving. And you know, I showed up in two thousand, and I think Williamsburg was starting to become what it was. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and but it was still pretty cool. Like it wasn't it wasn't the Apple Store yet. Not that I judge it. Like neighborhoods change. Yeah. I don't. I want to get over any sense of like purity. And, <laughs> yeah, but it was still like started going to like North Six. And then, oh yeah, and then a thing happened to me that was really cool. Where I had met the, this kid, and he gave me a CD from his band. He was dating a friend of mine at UCB, and I listened to it. It was pop punk, and he was from Jersey. I was like, "This is pretty good." And then somebody reaches out to me and is like, "Dude, there's this band coming out of New Brunswick right now, and they're about to fucking take over pop punk. They're awesome." And I was like, "Who are they?" And he's like, "The Ergs." I don't know if you know the Ergs. No, dude. And the that's Ergs what CD the, you got? Yeah. The Ergs, if you like the Descendants, the yes. Ergs worship at the altar of SST and the Descendants. They had just put out this album called Dork Rock Cork Rod. They're three nerdy guys. Okay. And I was like, I know those guys. They used to hang out at UCB because one of them dated my friend Dinah. Wow. I was like, Joe Erg changed my fucking tire one night when it popped. I was like, the Ergs are popping <laughs> off. And he, they were playing the Knitting Factory Ooh. when it was still in Manhattan. Great spot. Mm. Great spot. And I went to the show. I was like, I'll go check out these Jersey dudes. I haven't been to shows in a while, man. I kind of had my head up my ass with comedy, but I was starting to come out of that. That nice thing as an artist where I'm like, now I feel like I'm starting to find my footing. And you realize you got to find your inspiration outside of the thing you do. Totally. Like you're not going to write great songs if all you do is listen to music obsessively all that you gotta totally. go live some life you know that's why Chappelle only hangs out with musicians and not comedians <laughs> I bet yeah I bet <laughs> so I started go, I went and saw the Erg show and the first chord hits and half of New Brunswick jumped off the fucking stage <laughs> I was like I know all these dudes yeah I was like that's my friend Fid I knew Fid back in the day like wow. all these dudes I knew from Jersey or like and I, not even that I knew them because I was so shy but where I was like I recognize all these people and that's when I realized that like there had been a resurgence in the type of shit that I liked and I started diving in. Yeah. And that pretty led that 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 led to a there was some DIY spaces in New York like um Death by Audio, Shea Stadium, which was the spot in Bushwick where you tell people I'm doing a show at Shea Stadium. They all thought they were like, What? <laughs> it's like, no, no, not City Field. Yeah. These guys named it after that. Um, you know. What year was Kent that? Street, Glasslands. That was after 2003 The Ergs? No, the Ergs was probably, uh, that was probably like, Dork Rock probably came out like 2006, 7, wow. 8. I was gone by uh, then. We were yeah. out of New York by then, man. Right. And then I started That's my show in here. 2009 and we went to public access 2011 yeah. and it became a cool thing because there was this thriving DIY scene all over Brooklyn and we became those guys' TV show. And that was fucking, that was That's a point cool. of pride for me. And then when I got my TV show on cable, I hate to say it, but there's a part of it. It was on Fusion or Fuse? It was on Fusion for two seasons, which is Tiny Network. Then it was on True TV. Yeah. But dude, I hate to even think this way because I know you're just a guy and I'm in your kitchen, but it's the type of thought where I'm like, I think you would be proud of me for this. And I sometimes do have that thought of like, I bet Toby would be proud of it. The guy (laughs) who said hi to me at the show. Of course. I used my cable show to go and get a bunch of my fucking bands that were like heroes of mine in high school on TV. It's amazing. I got, dude, I pull them up. But like, there's one I want. 
Oh yeah, who is it? Pull it up. Pull it. Give him the mic. Give him the mic. <laughs> There's. It's a deep cut. Okay. That you had on there. Uh-oh, here we ready go. for this one? Yeah. Is this Nardwar shit? Whatever. It it, I mean, it's. I mean, it's not Nardwar, but. No, it's Adam and his package. Got, that's the name I was gonna. Do you know Adam? Adam is package. package. That's now, a deep cut. Now you can tell when I'm talking about. I liked the funny bands yes. in my high school era. I saw that dude all over Jersey and in so many basements. Adam and his package is a big part of why I wanted to do comedy. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. And I got him on TV in 2016, which you know as yeah. a fan. It, clearly, you like him. That's a miracle. He okay. was this dude. He did. Um, he programmed a sequencer. Okay. So it's mm-hmm. all sort of electronic stuff. I think a lot of the nerdcore rap stuff owes a lot to Adam. For I think sure. a lot of those guys For cite sure. him. But then he he was in a band in um, Philly called Fracture. Okay. I remember mm-hmm. that name. And they were friends. That song, Happy Birthday, Ralph, is about that guy. Ralph from the band. He was friends with all those Philly guys. Ink and Dagger, those, mm-hmm. that, okay. that era of Philly stuff. And he used to come through Jersey. He'd play a guitar, but there'd be this electronic music that he programmed. And he'd have songs about meatballs. He has a song you would fucking love called Punk Rock Academy. Oh, Punk Rock Academy. That's, Dude, that's like his biggest. The, okay. premise, like his the whole biggest premise one. of the song is just like, why didn't we just start a high school just for the punks? Yeah. We all were picked on and hated. Why didn't we just have that? So idea? Good. And the lyrics are so witty and funny. So funny. And I. Then he's got some ones that are like, you know, like with the shits of like, you know, expressing like, like kind of like serious issues. But yeah. he does yeah. it in such a I could sing funny that whole way. song start to finish right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Didn't now. he perform Punk Rock Academy on, he performed on your show? Punk Rock Academy on the show because all I could think about was I, I saw this guy in a in a basement in Wayne and Damn. a VFW hall in Gillette, New Jersey in like nineteen ninety six. And he's part of why I'm doing this. Wow. And I reached out to him. I was like, I got his email from a mutual friend. I was like, I know you don't play anymore. It would be an honor to give you your first TV show appearance because I think you should have been on TV in '96. Yeah, that guy awesome. famously he he's a t- he became a teacher. He became a teacher in Philly. Great yeah. dude, great wow. guy. To like this like thing. a science. He teacher, also I like think. his shit was really weird and electronic. And MRR was like, we won't review it. It's not punk. And like they wow. pulled that card, and then that just made us all love him more. Maximum rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. maximum wow. rock and roll was but like. Meanwhile, we like cover. he was punk as fuck. He was the punkest fucking like, dude, dude ever. So yeah. punk. He's doing the weirdest shit anybody's ever seen in basement, dude. Just like I was fighting his time with that style, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, for sure. Like if like if he came out now, like he'd be at Coachella, right? Uh, He'd be at Coachella. He would have blown up. (laughs) He would have blown up. He would have. Kids would have like kids who like Bandcamp kids and uh, yeah, the kids who found shit through Bandcamp, like that whole SoundCloud, that Tumblr kids. Yeah, yeah. They all would have loved him. He was Mm -hmm. so ahead of his time. But dude, this song. I was fighting the mold in the bowl with my pee when a thought popped into my brain. If all of us hated high school so much, why was nothing ever changed? So I called Brian up with my plan that's red hot. Let's start a private institution in the name of punk rock. We'll get our own, we'll get our government funding and our own private road and 666 as our radio show code. I had a dream when I was in high school that I attended the Punk Punk Rock Rock Academy. Academy. (laughs) I had a dream when I was in high school, I attended the Punk Rock Academy and no one made fun of me. And it just goes from there. I could do the rest, but why bother? I'm about to put this on the end of this episode. Oh, it's oh, so yeah. You got. I mean, it, it may be very different. <laughs> I don't know what the New York hardcore cats would. Uh, <laughs> I think you'll appreciate Ever. it. You'll but appreciate dude, it. I got yeah, Adam and his sure. package on. Less than Jake, my favorite band in high school. Called them up. Please play my show. I got. They might be giants on. That was a pretty wow, big one for me at big. a certain era. I got. Uh, who were some of the other like high school heroes? I got the Ergs to reunite. They had broken up. 
They're now reunited. They reunite. The first time they played together again was on my show. And it was funny because Mikey Erg wound up being the drummer in my house band on my show. So he's like a friend of mine. But I sent them all an email. I was like, guys, I'm not going to Mikey on this because I know it's sensitive and you guys had a breakup. But for all three of you, I was like, everyone asks you. I know you hate it. You've all played my show. Joe Erg was in a band Nightbirds that put out stuff on Fat. Okay. Really good. Jeff Erg was in Black Wine. Like they all did. Mikey did solo shit. I was like. I won't forgive myself if I don't at least try because you guys meant so much to me. And you guys kind of brought me back to loving music and like brought Jersey Pride with yeah. it. I That's will not forgive myself. And they were like, all right, for you, we'll do it. And then another guy, because another New York hip hop guy who's huge for me, when you talk about guys who are weird and funny, art like the art shit, I had Cool Keith play Ooh, my show. Ooh, I knew you were going to say that. Dude, Cool Keith came and He's played. He's amazing. He played Blue Flowers on my show. Wow. And that Blue was, Flowers? Dude, Damn. Cool Keith playing Blue Flowers for a bunch of alternative comedy fans. Dude, we chill with him hard in the warp too. He wear Dude. super big jean shorts. And he's not with cowboy boots. There's all that Bro. debate about like, is he really oh, yeah. as weird as he pretends to be? Crazy. You and I can both vouch. He, that dude's weird in the best way, but legit. it's real. Legit. legit. <laughs> you know what's funny? One day I saw him trying to walk up this grass hill behind the venue. And he kept slipping in his with cowboy this. boots. <laughs> I came over and I helped him up the hill. He's like, man. thanks, man. He played my show. He's he, hard. Dude, Dr. Octagon yes. loved yeah. it. Everybody yeah. loves Dr. Octagon. I was oh, a big yeah. sex style fan. Oh yeah, sex styles. I'll also say that's right. I went through some addiction stuff, and I've been sober for many, many years now. How many, how many years now? Um, I was straight edge from up until my senior high school. I drank oh, it till my junior year of college, and then I quit because I went that. It was that. But I saw a lot of my family. So since my senior year of high school, so since I was yeah, like twenty two years now. Wow, man. Nice. Felt, awesome, had man. some times where I messed up and have some jokes about one time where I, a friend convinced me to try Molly and it led to a real bad summer, but by and large, I've been able to stay strong. <laughs> but dude, like, summer. Cool Keith, Sex Style, that album, I'm like, everybody sex thinks style. that's just an album that's like gross sex songs. I'm like, no, that's an album about a man who suffers from an addiction who flees New York to try to get away from it and it gets even worse in LA. That album's fucking dark Damn. and layered. I didn't even know that. I saw him performing at that show. I love that album. Tour. Yeah. And he played my show. <laughs> So weird. I told everyone because not everybody knew him. I was like, this dude's the fucking best. But you can see, I'm grabbing like things I loved in 1996, 98, and putting it on in 2016, 17 on cable TV, and I was proud of it. Yeah. And the network didn't want music on the show. I was like, fuck off. We're having music. Mm. They're like, music gets bad ratings. I'm like, don't care. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Had Ted Leo on the show. That was a big uh, one for an Essex County Jersey yeah. guy, you know? Yeah, he's an awesome voice. Dude. And cool great Keith, songwriter. After the episode, there was this bar we used to hang out at. And the crew, they people drink. I don't judge. I don't drink. We go. Cool Keith's at the bar. I did not expect that. Usually, the guests and the musicians would leave. He's there. I walk in, and as I walk in, I I had even gotten some some people were like, "You got to get to the bar quick," because like none of us can figure out even really how to talk to this dude. I was like, "I'm on it. I'm on it." I walk in. People are like looking my way. Like we're over, and I sit down next to him. He doesn't say like "good show." He doesn't say "thanks for having me." He looks right at me. First words out of his mouth. He's like, "Chris." Don't you think it's weird that we only dye eggs and hide them and find them for Easter? That's fun. We should be doing that for more holidays. I was like, yeah, man. You got a point. Why are we only doing that for Easter? And then I hung out with him and talked all night. Wow. It was the best. And then he fucking thanked. I'm thanked on a Cool Keith album. And oh, that's, that's like oh, that's, point of pride. Wow, man. dude. That's, Damn. That's, that's so cool, like to pay it forward and bring all these people on your show. Like I just knew I was like, this show's not gonna last forever because it's too weird. Yeah. And if I have the chance to put on musicians, like we got to a point where our show was popular enough. We used to have to beg bands to come on. 
Then it started to become a thing by the end. Publicists were pitching us. Ooh. And I was yeah. like, no, no, no. We can maybe get, there was one band, an, a very, very popular indie band. I have my opinions on indie rock. Okay. You know? Okay. I think all punks do, right? Oh, yeah. I like a lot of it, but there's some of it where I'm like, are you really about it? Yeah. And these guys were big. And they said they would play our show. They asked us if they could play the show. Wow. And then the day of, they oh. were like, we don't like this and this and that about the contract. And we were like, guys, we're like a tiny little show. Everyone has signed the contract. We don't have time. And they bailed oh, day of. Man. And then That's this punk cool. band, this pop punk band from England named Martha, they were big fans of the show. I had done a festival in Scotland and I met them. And I knew they were touring somewhere in the United States. And I messaged them. I'm like, where are you guys right now? They're like, we're opening for Jeff Rosenstock in D.C. And I was like, if you can get if you can get here in time, if you want to play the show. And they all they took their instruments. They had the day off. They jumped on an Amtrak train from D.C., got there just in time. Amazing. They wow. played. It was, I, I'm not trying to slam them too hard because they listen. If you read a contract and you don't like it, I'm an artist, too. Don't mm. sign the contract. So I'm not yeah. mad. At, but it was Yola Tango. Mm. Big mm. band. And a band I, I still to this day will say I have a lot of respect for it. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk shit about Yola Tango. But they got to play on Yola Tango's back line because we had already had it all set up like, oh, yeah. from their rider. They were like, this is the best equipment. We This tiny, <laughs> pop, pop, <laughs> tiny yeah. pop punk band from England is like, holy shit, we're playing on some for real stuff. And they came in and saved us. And I was like, I was like, the punk kids dropped everything and jumped on an Amtrak from D.C. to get here in time. And like, mm. that's, that's still... It's still what I love about it. Yeah, man. Even as I can't claim to be as much a part of it as I used to be, but I still am like, that's why I always loved this. Yeah. They're like, you're 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 in a jam and we like the show. We're on our way, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get here. And you brought it back on your show. You know what I mean? That's awesome. I really, I knew. I was like, our show's weird. It's not (laughs) clicking. Like, it's on a network with the Impractical Jokers. And I really, I'm really, I'm tight with um, Sal Volcano in particular. But I always like those guys. But they just dominate the whole network. It's not their fault. It's like, if you weren't the Impractical Jokers, the fan base of that network just wasn't going to love us. And I could feel the number, the numbers were going down each week. I saw them. Mm. I was like, this thing's dying. I got to get, I try, I got to try to get every band I love on. Is this one is on Fusion? That was when it was on True TV. True TV by then. Yeah. Yeah. Because the other show, we did like 150 episodes too. One of the, one of the other show, right? On public access. Yeah. We did 100. And that's where we had <laughs> Fucked Up on. That's where Damien. Okay. And dude. Fucked Up's a great band. We too. couldn't believe that they said yes. Because that was like 2014 or 15. Remember Fucked Up? We played with them a bunch, yeah. And they were they were a big fucking deal in that scene at that point. We were like, yeah. they, we were like our, one of our music bookers, Heidi, really, really, really loved them. She was like, I have to try. I was like, Fucked Up is not going to come play our public access <laughs> show for free on a Wednesday at 11 p.m. at 59th Street and 11th Avenue. It's like, there's no way. They were like, yup, we're there. Damn. I couldn't believe it. And then they told us, they were like, you don't realize, like, we've never been able to be on American TV because our name. Gotcha. They all want to change our name and we're not into it. And I was like, oh. And they came and played and the episode was bad comedically that night. But it was kind of great because I just turned around to them. Usually we'd have people. We did like the SNL model. You play one song yeah. early in the show, another song later. I just turned around to them. I was like, guys, this episode's not going well. You just want to play more? And they were like, fuck yes. And it just became the last like 20 minutes of the show. It's just an impromptu fucked up show. Amazing, and of course, Damien. Smashing himself. Dude, and- his shirt's off instantly. <laughs> There's a staircase running up the middle of the studio. He's climbing up the staircase and threatening to like jump off it onto people. People wow. are carrying him on their shoulders. 
he found there was like an old orange traffic cone that somebody had left in the studio for some reason. He's yelling his lyrics through the traffic cone. There's like audience members and members of our crew all start taking their shirts. I'm like, you guys have jobs. Like these crew guys are abandoning their jobs to take their shirts off and carry Damien around the studio. It was just fucking fun. Damn. So beautiful. So beautiful. And that was the era of public access. I didn't make a dime on it. I couldn't (laughs) offer to pay them, but I'm like, if you want to have a super fun experience with an audience that will love you. I can offer you that. How are uh, you surviving then from that show? Or just- so I, I came up at UCB and everybody started getting really successful out of UCB. And I hit a sad point around 2009. People started going like, how come? Like, like my friend Bobby got on SNL, Bobby Moynihan. People are like, cool, you're the next guy up. Mm. I'm like, it's feeling, I'm feeling good. I'm like a big fish in this pond and a lot of eyes on this pond. My friend Zach gets the office. People are like, okay, that's awesome. Zach's great too. You're next though, definitely, right? I'm like, yeah, I hope so, I hope so. Then the Aubrey Plaza, who I taught in her level three improv class, gets parked in recreation. I'm like, okay, this is someone I taught in a class. Okay, this is starting to feel, okay, now I'm starting to feel a little bit like has the shit passed me by. And then I had this crazy thing happen where John Heater, no, you know, most famously known as Napoleon Dynamite, mm-hmm. he was the. Oh lead. wow! I didn't even know it was, it was he, he was the lead on a sitcom. <laughs> Incredible movie, man! So wow. there was a sitcom on Comedy Central. He mm. was going to be the lead mm. with Chris Parnell and Horatio Sands from SNL, produced by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. Ten episodes. Nice. Damn. He dropped out with like a week to go. Oh. They auditioned ten people. Two people got callbacks. I got the show. So on like four days notice, they're like, you're going to be the lead in a sitcom for 10 episodes. Wow. New York Times wrote an article about it, about like, here's this kid that if you know New York comedy, you've known him for a while. Dude, I had people coming up to me. I had two friends who wrote on the Colbert Report, came up to me and were like, we've never wanted to tell you this because it's sad. But like there have been days at the Colbert Report where the head writer has to tell us to get back to work because we sit and have conversations about how we wish you were into politics because... It's insane. Like, it's so sad that you haven't had a job till now. Like, we talk about how sad wow. it is that your career just took this. Off. I had someone who was a student at UCB came up to me and was like, I'm going to keep trying comedy now because I was about to quit because I'm like, if that dude can't get a job, why the fuck I can't? Like, I was that God. guy. I, for, I was like that sad guy in the scene for people. And then I got the job. What but was he, the show called? It was called Big Lake. And here's the best part. It's a fucking disaster. <laughs> it was a disaster. And like while we were filming it, I was like, ooh, this is going to be nuts. Like the New York Times is like, this guy got this miracle chance. This dude who stars in movies dropped out. And they just went with this dude who everybody in New York comedy was like, give this guy the shot. And they actually did it. It's like Rudy. It's like yeah, comedy yeah, Rudy. Rudy. Rudy yeah, yeah. And then I'm here on the set and I'm like, there's a lot of charm to the idea that your movie star drops out with a week, but it's also maybe reflective mm. that like things aren't going smooth and like the head writer didn't like me and i would be filming it and i'd be like it was it's a whole i mean i could talk for hours about this and then like they they were like it's not gonna have a laugh track and they shot it all and then the director called me after we wrapped and was like so i got bad news like they want a laugh track and i'm like okay he's like so i'm gonna put a laugh track in but he's like when you film a show with a laugh track you film for pauses for the laugh track and we didn't do any of that because they told us there wouldn't be a laugh track Mm. so he's like you film over everything? He's like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. So you would watch this show, and I would maintain that the joke, the scripts were actually okay, but you'd watch the show, and it was the weirdest feeling show because it would just be like, someone would say a thing, and it would be like, <laughs> and then the actors would just move on, and it was like, it didn't feel right. Oh, Nothing damn. about the show felt good. 
So I'm like, man, there's all this hype. And I had this crazy summer where I was single at the time, all this buzz. They told me, it was this really insane thing Tyler Perry invented called a 1090, which in TV, it's like, we're not going to do a pilot. We're going to do 10 episodes. And a few production companies team up to fund it. But if we pick it up, it gets picked up for 90 episodes immediately. Man. And then it wow. can go to syndication. Cause it, and Tyler Perry has had a few shows, I think on like TBS, that did this. Okay. And they go, if this show gets picked up, you're going to make $2.2 million the day it gets picked up. They told me that. Holy I was like, shit, fuck, man. So I got all these people going, the New York Times is writing profiles on you. I'm single. All of a sudden, girls are like messaging me on Facebook back then. I was like, this doesn't Friendster. fucking happen. Now, keep in mind, I lived in a room in Woodside, Queens with one of, a guy I did improv with in college in a room with no closet. That was my life. Clothes piled on the floor. My bed was the top half of a loft bed that I just put on the floor. It was pathetic. Wow. I used, you know, my friend of mine saw it. He's like, you sleep in a fucking dog bed. He's like, dude, this is sad. Oh. So that show came out, and I had a feeling it was going to go bad. The reviews creamed me. Like, blamed me. And I get it. I wasn't great on the show, but I'm also like, I stepped in last minute. I didn't write it. I didn't produce it. I didn't stick the laugh track on it. There's a lot. I'm the public face of it. And I read some reviews that were fair, and then I read some where I was just like, man, this is just people who need clicks being mean. Totally. And I could feel it. And it didn't hurt me that much. And I tell you, I had this very distinct feeling where I was like, if I ever take it on the chin this hard again, it's got to be for something I actually believe in. So my yeah. agents at the time were like, let's get you out to Los Angeles because even though this bombed, you're a sitcom guy now. So in pilot season, we, we're going to be able to get you auditions for every show in pilot season. That's how it works. Wow. I was like, I had been doing the Chris Gethard show at UCB and we were doing fucked up. We were doing shows where it would be like, everybody put on a diaper. We're going to weigh the diapers at the end and whoever pissed the most wins. <laughs> Like we're gonna do a show where I bring in a jujitsu black belt who's gonna judo throw me so hard that the audience is yelling at him to stop. Like that was my sense of humor at the time. This yeah. crazy shit. Yeah. It's really crazy, fucking weird, uncomfortable. We had a show called The Night of Zero Laughs where it was if anyone in the audience laughs, you have to leave the show you paid for. It's gonna wow. be the most intentionally unfunny comedy show of all time. And if you leave, we have referees who blow whistles and kick you out. Like I was doing these weird experiments. Not all of them went great, but I was like, that's what I love. And I was like, I don't want to go to L.A. I want to do that show. And right then I met a friend of mine who was like, I work at the public access station. He's like, that show you do once a month? That would be a great public access show. And I was like, fuck, yeah. Because mm -hmm. all I could think of was my older brother running up our basement steps being like, I just found this thing on UHF. Come right now. Come watch UHF with me. Yeah. And he'd show me some bizarre shit on like those, you know, the old TVs where you have to dial up way up high. Yeah. We'd be like, I just found this thing on Univision. It's fucking nuts. Come watch this span. And we wouldn't know what was going on. And we'd be like, I have no idea what they're saying, but this is brilliant. <laughs> All I could think of was like, I got to make that, that if I could make the TV version of that show I do at UCB that I love, that's the show my brother would have showed me. So if the only way I can make it is public access, that's what I'm doing. And then, it's a long roundabout answer to say the way I funded it was I had those 10 episodes of that sitcom. Oh, yeah. And for three more years, I lived in a room in Woodside with clothes on the floor, sleeping in a dog bed with my friend who I did improv with in college. Because I was like, all that money, that's more money than I've ever made in my life, the 10 episodes of that show. But in my mind, I go, that doesn't exist. Smart. I'm not getting a better apartment. I'm not getting anything fancy. I'm not changing my lifestyle. That money 
saved it saved it and used it so that i could survive while i went and performed on public access for free for like five years and then i would find some other jobs there were a couple times where i almost ran out of money and had to stop and then a a job would come through and then eventually we sold a pilot to comedy central they passed did public access another year that was hard that was painful And you're auditioning for stuff too, because you're you're in some movies. Auditioning, too. picking up gigs here and there, yeah. starting to tour a little bit, like cobbling to get figuring out how to cobble together a career. You're in the dictator? I, oh, that was a nut that's a nuts story too. I, I was cut from the dictator. I'm pictured in the background of the dictator. Wow. I spent a night on the set of if, so Sasha Baron Cohen he famously stays in character. Hmm. I heard. And I gotta say, I admire him greatly. I wish I didn't hang out with him on a night where he was pretending to be the evil, cruel, ruthless dictator of a small country because he stayed in character (laughs) the whole time, treating everyone on the set as if he was the dictator of an Eastern European nation. Wow. And I was like, this is fucking nuts. (laughs) This is nuts, man. This is wild. Like he was intense. I'm not judging him. I don't know if he's like that every day, but with me, I was like, this was intense. So, uh, yeah. Also, the movie Heat, one of my favorite funny comedies. I mean, uh, my fr- a friend of mine from my college improv group wrote that. She With Rappaport, Bill Burr, Sandra. Part, yeah. 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 It's a great fucking movie, man. Yeah, I try to hit on Sandra Bullock on a dance floor in that movie, and Melissa McCarthy beats me up. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's crazy. And then the other guys, too? Yeah, that was where Adam McKay and Will Ferrell first found me. That's why they had me audition for the TV show, because I, I had a tiny little part in the other guys. Yeah, yeah. Damn. So I was one of those New York comedy actors picking stuff up here and there. Yeah, you, did, you wrote something for SNL too? I was a guest writer there for two weeks and then they didn't hire me. That was, I kind of auditioned for them. I came so close. Almost got hired for Fallon's original writing staff. This was me in New York. People were like, you come so close to all this stuff where people are like, you writing for SNL makes total sense. This is a random one. You write it for Dallas Strawberry Show? Oh, that was, a, that was a show I made up that I couldn't do today. And then I promise, it's not, by modern day standards, it sounds very bad. It was actually a very funny, good-hearted show. The premise of that show, I did a show at UCB where the premise was that Daryl Strawberry was doing an autobiographical one-man show, but he got into a car accident on the way to the theater, and I was the understudy. So I had to step in and perform <laughs> Daryl Strawberry's one-man show. And it was based on his real autobiography. And then I wrote a bunch of insane bits. I did not put on blackface. I promise. <laughs> I did, no not, videos, I did yeah. not do a funny voice. The premise of the show was here's this overwhelmed nerd trying to do this legendarily uh, divisive professional athlete's one-man show. Probably wouldn't stage it today, but I can tell you, even if, if, if the worst, whatever you're thinking in your head, it was not as bad. It was actually, <laughs> it was actually a pretty good-hearted show that was on his side. And you're a big Conan O'Brien fan? Yeah, huge Conan fan. You've been on there a couple times, The right? first acting work I ever got. I was so young at UCB. I was, not, I was 20 years old at UCB, but I was a baby face, so I looked like a high school kid. So a lot of my uh, first paid comedy work was they'd have me come play a high school student in sketches on Conan. Wow. And that it was, was uh, very Mike, cool. Mike, um, I forget his last name, glasses. Mike Coleman? Yeah. He, was he... He was UCB, and he would do a lot of bit parts. Oh, Michael Conan. Delaney. That's it. See, Michael right. Delaney was one of my teachers. He was my mentor. Uh, he did a ton of that. Yeah. Um, this is where the this is where connection it, comes. Connection comes. When I, I used to work for a, um, a jeweler on Twenty Third Street when I would leave college on the weekends. You're close we, to the mic, Rush. You have a soft voice. When we when we first started H two O, I would come in. I went to SUNY New Paltz. So I was doing a metals degree there. I worked for a jeweler. We'd carve wax models on Twenty Third Street and Sixth, and Mike. Mike and his and his uh, Lisa Linda Linda, Linda. yeah. They, <laughs> oh, this is an amazingly small world. They they would work in this room yeah. as well. Joel Joel was the jeweler. 
that and I was his main guy. And he's like, I'm going to teach Mike. And, and his, yeah, because I remember he to, did some of that. He learns how to do this. Yeah, and, and you know then he was doing improv before UCB in New York, and it was like a non-existent thing. He was one of the first people, even before they showed up. Yeah. Yeah. So in... in when um when I saw him on Conan, I was like, oh no shit, that's um this yeah, is awesome. Yeah, yeah. I used to, I'm like, I used yeah, to work with this guy. Yeah, he was my teacher, mentor. I performed with him hundreds of times. Yeah, great guy. Er- great earlier, guy. earlier, I was gonna be like, so who, who was in the UCB when you when yeah when he you was were- that he was like the teacher that taught my whole generation. Uh, yeah, and you know him, Rusty. Yeah, that's awesome, that's sweetheart. Did you know Billy as well? His friend, bigger guy that he performed with, he was around right. a lot back then too. I guarantee we. Yeah. Because Billy has a lot of stories about showing up in New York in the mid '90s, and he would drink at some bar. Zigzag. Johnny Ramon probably. always drank there. Zigzag. Oh yeah, and his, his brother, brother worked there. His brother was a bartender, and he had Zigzag. all these. He's like, I used to drink with Johnny Ramon, and I was like, that's amazing. And he's like, it wasn't always amazing. No, he's like Johnny Ramon was an angry dude. Yes. Oh yeah, Republican. my brother worked at that bar, Zigzag on Twenty Third so Street. That's funny. Yeah. And Holy Liz, shit. Um, and Blondie would always roll in there too, that's, and they would sit next to each other and curmudgeon about. Yeah, New York kind of fucking sucks now. Yeah, he said. It, <laughs> Billy said it was a lot of that. Yeah. That's such a small. That's world. funny because we worked on uh, half a block away. Yes. Toby's brother Todd was a bartender, so I'd go do my jewelry work with Joel, and then usually around midnight or one, we would roll over to Zigzag, and say, "Hey, what's up, Todd?" Shoot the shit, and occasionally see Johnny Ramone there. And that's yeah. so wild. <laughs> it's crazy. And that's would like you just pray small. he didn't realize you guys were a band, so you didn't have to hear like his opinions on modern New York oh, punk? <laughs> or what is punk? Yeah. So, some of the things that we would hear, it's, um, and Todd would hear, and Todd would be like, "Man, he's like a right wing." I know. It was not insane. I mean, that we're, documentary, we're, it all came yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when he re- when he was like, "I'm basically just a t-shirt salesman," I'm like, "No, no, 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 no!" Like. <laughs> you wrote songs that actually restructured my DNA. Like yeah. I can't hear you sell, say you just sell T-shirts. Like you changed my entire approach to life. Please don't say yeah. it just comes down to selling T-shirts. When you yeah. can't. When you thank George Bush on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right after Joey died, that really that killed me, man. Yeah. Oh. And the KKK took my baby away. That song's about about him. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy yeah. when you find those things out later on in life. You're like because you only get Ooh, it when I, you're young. Now, since I have you guys here, because I've been talking about myself so much, and I know that's yeah, right. I'm the guest, but yeah. Who are like the New York punk heroes that you guys got to meet where you're like, they were everything I wanted them to be? Because you are that for me right now. Thank you. Man. That was in, I met you in the 90s and you were cool and you're cool today. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, Jerry Moen was always sweet. Yeah. He'd always give you stop and talk to you for a second. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, he was also wonderful. I mean, for me, Ian Mackay is somebody oh, yeah. that changed my life. I got to life. do a comedy show with Ian Mackay once. Really? It was the best. He didn't do comedy though, did he? Yeah. Port, not Portlandia or. No, there was a show at UCB called. Ascat, which was the Sunday yeah, night show. Yeah, it's in here. Yeah, Ascat, that was yeah. the big Sunday night. That was the big show at UCB. Yeah. yeah, and that was a show that was basically like the pickup basketball of the best improvisers in New York. So on any given Sunday, it would be like Amy Poehler was always there when she was on SNL. This is one that Rob Williams showed up to. I read your whole Robin story. Robin Williams. I got you to do improv with Robin Williams one night yes, at that okay, show. Yeah, right. that was that type of show. A guy like Robin Williams would drop in sometimes, you know. But I mean, there were times that I was this guy in two thousand seven, eight, nine, where it would be like the show on Sunday nights would be. Amy Poehler, Seth Meyers, Jason Sudeikis, Jack McBrayer from 30 Rock, three writers from Conan, and Chris Gethard. Uh, and for years, Glazer. it would be that. And people would be like, yeah, Glazer, Stack. all those. Gla- you know Stack? Yeah. Dude, uh, these were my improv heroes. Stack. Stack's the nicest human being. He's he a writer is. at Colbert now. Yeah, Best guy ever. Biggest, and you can always tell when it's a Stack bit. 
Oh, yeah. like the voice. <laughs> also, the most encyclopedic cool fan of the replacements that you will ever meet. Brian Stack, mm. the comedy writer, knows more about the replacements uh, than anyone I know. I once heard a song on WFMU that was a replacements B side, and I was like, "Where can I find it?" And the next time I saw him, he handed me three DVDs of like replacements B sides and live shows, and like three CDs, and then a DVD of them playing. Uh, I think Maxwell's in Hoboken. Which wow. was a big spot for me as well as yeah. a Jersey kid. Yeah, Max oh, was awesome. I saw, dude, Max Maxwell's was the best. Yeah. I saw Fagazi there, I think, once. Yeah. Dude, oh, so Ian Mackay. So, Tell us. So they, UCB <laughs> opened a new theater in the East Village. They wanted to do an ASCAT to launch it. Besser was a big punk fan. He was going to fly from LA to do the show, and he asked the booker, he's like, it would be a dream of mine, can you try to book Ian Mackay? And somehow they got him to say yes. Mm. So then Besser's flight, Besser and Ian Roberts, two of the owners, they were on a flight and there was tr- bad traffic over the uh, bad weather over the Midwest. The flight got grounded. Okay. So Amy Poehler comes up to me and she's like, "Listen, there's a bunch of us that like punk, but you grew up in it, right?" And I was like, "Yeah." And she's like, "I understand Ian McKay's a big. De- I'm not trying to claim like she was totally ignorant. She's like, I get that he's a big deal, but she's like, you like know his stuff really well, right?" I was like, "Minor threat in particular, like Fugazi, sure. Yes. Minor threat in particular, though. I mean, I'm not lying when I tell you guys." As far as hardcore goes, I went and bought the Youth of Today 7-inch Gorilla Biscuits. I really tried. <laughs> it was too much for me. The two, the two hardcore records that I still love, that H2O, Minor Threat Discography. Those were the two. Oh, yeah. The pop punk guy, you guys had actual melodies had in there. Melodies, yes. I could get into it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Stood by. So she's like, any Maryland. chance? She's like, he's really nice, but he's also really reserved. Like, would you be down to just like sit with him in the green room? She had met him already? He had shown up really early. Wow. He's like right on, you Amy know, really early. guy hanging out, Dude, bro. and Amy's like, can you just like hang with him and talk with him because I think you'll just like have more to talk about. And I got to sit in this green room and ask Ian McKay every question I've ever wanted to ask him. Really? He told me some stories. He told me the whole story, everything I ever could have dreamed of hearing about when Fear played SNL and wrecked yes. the place. Mm-hmm. Telling me stories about like, I think he said he saw, I don't want to misquote it and start some punk legend. If I remember right, he said at one point, because he was like, the thing people don't realize is the security guards were chasing us all over 30 Rock for like a long time after the thing. Wow. And he said at one point he runs into the staircase and I think he said he saw rabies smash yeah. a pumpkin on a security guard's head. Okay. And all the DC guys that. just were like, go the other fucking way and ran away. Was, he saw some <laughs> new, some legendary New York name. Wow. One of those names that as a Jersey kid, I just would hear I'll rabies and be like, yeah. that sounds like a scary guy to me. These hardcore guys all have nicknames? What the fuck? <laughs> What's the real Dude, name? He told me every fucking story I ever could have dreamed. I got to thank him because I ran a fanzine in high school, one of my early attempts at comedy. And Discord, for some reason, bought an ad. It was in our second issue. It wasn't a no big... No way. I made like 100 copies, and we sent one to Discord, and they bought an ad for like 20 bucks. And That's he was like, so cool. we used to do that. He's like, we used to... like We'd get these little tiny fanzines, and we could tell it was high school kids. And we were like, we could give oh, 20 boy. bucks more to the bigger fanzines, or we could keep our rates with them the same and give 20 bucks to some high school kid, so and maybe they'll make two more issues of this. You so know? cool. Dude. He was so cool. Damn. And then he told stories from his life, and then we made up improv scenes off of him. Okay, I was wondering uh, what he was doing yeah. and what he was just to tell So stories. he didn't have to be the funny guy. It was just you tell true stories. The audience yells out a suggestion, you tell true stories, and then the rest of us do scenes based on those stories. Wow. Was uh, that recorded? No. Damn. But that was a dream. That That's was a, a dream, dream show. And he was so kind and so nice, and he told me so many cool fucking stories. Oh, yeah. He's, he's got great memory. You probably, just, you must have met him, right? Oh, yeah, many times. Met in the Discord and heard the story. It's yeah. amazing now. Yeah. His memory. 
the back he, the back cover of Use Your Voice. We went to the Discord. We house. we did the photo. Uh, of course, and stuff. But, yeah. But like he's just like he's everything you want to be. Expect him to be. And I met I met some people where I wish I didn't meet them. He's a person like I'm lucky to have enough to have met him and spent time with him. You know what I'm saying? Such an impact on my life. Yeah. And, and he's he's the, he's the epitome of punk rock, man. There oh, was yeah. one when DIY. we went, when yes. we left public access and we got bought by a cable network. I was feeling very much like the spirit of the show is independence and I'm selling it out. I know I'm selling it out right now, but also like I have to pay my rent and I get to do it through this thing I love. And like there's all these kids that have worked on the public access show for years and I'm going to be able to hire a lot of them and they're going to get their first jobs in TV production. Yeah. And there was a part of me, I dreamed of, um, I was like, I should call Ian McKay and ask him how to do this the right way. Mm. I should see, and I'd never track down his number. And he would have just. I bet he would have. I bet he would have. Hundred percent. I talked. I did talk to Jeff Rosenstock, who I would argue is a little bit of a modern Ian McKay to a lot of kids right now. Who is? I'm not sure. sure So Jeff was in a Long Island band called Bomb the Music Industry for a long time. Okay. And they used to do a lot of stuff that was similar, you know, like cheap shows, all ages shows. Yeah. Bring a T-shirt and we'll spray paint it over a stencil, so you don't have to pay the full price on a T-shirt with a jacked-up wow. price. Like yeah. a lot of that for years, and now he puts out solo materials. And he, I think, to a current generation of punk kids, and especially to a lot of bands that have come up recently, he's a guy they look to. Like some generations look to Ian. Not okay. that he's had as much of a national impact, but as far as the ideals of it. Jeff Rosenstock has always done it the right way. And I did talk with him for a long time because we had this funny, like the fusion network calls us. They're like, we got great news. We got a sponsorship for your show. And that was like a huge deal. Yeah. Like, holy shit. That makes us look great. They go, yeah, AT&T wants to sponsor the music performances. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, I've spent years getting like actual punk DIY kids coming from the DIY spaces of New York and now that's going to be the one part of the show with corporate branding on it. Mm. It was really messing my head up. Mm. And I was like, I don't know if I can say yes to that because like, there's like a Jersey band I love called Screaming Females who are the most fucking cool. They're the best. But they also do it so for real and I'm like, I would love to invite them back. They played for twice for free on public access. I want to have them on the cable show. Yeah. But I can't, can I with a straight face ask them to do the AT&T music stage? And Jeff talked me through it for like an hour about, here's how we're going to do it. Here's how you can do it the right way. Here's how you can make this happen. And did you do it? I did. I did what he, he also was like, all the bands play festivals now. Yeah. The festivals are all corporate branded. It's, it's not as big a deal. Like Red Bull sponsors a ton of shit that's actually cool now. Like own it, go with it. Also, everyone who played your show in the old days knows that you have a right to try to make money and survive off of it. Yeah. And we all got your back. Like don't worry about punk purists right now. I was like, thank you just needed to hear that but i thought about i should try to track down ian's number and i'm sure we give you amazing advice to and talk to you I, for a while about you know what i mean like love, i hope i cross paths with that guy you will someday. You'll see him sometime. So. You, ever, you ever perform in dc i do sometimes but i don't know how to get in touch with him to you invite just pull him up. He's, you can just go to the website he has an email on there hit him up so and he just through. answers those emails yes. from the website email address yes. oh, yeah. i wish i knew it was legit i was and just can, in dc a few months you ago. can call discord and he might even answer the phone during the I, week I, I did a short film um, a few years ago and the filmmakers were very cool and they wound up working on a project where they went to Discord House for something. I think a documentary type thing. Oh, really? And they were like, yeah, dude, Ian asked us what we were working on. We said we had just done a short with you and he wound up talking about 
you for what? like half an hour about that show you guys oh, did together. Wow. I was like, that's the fucking coolest thing in the <laughs> world. Because okay. I still listen to those Minor Threat songs when I'm bummed out. Oh, really? Still, if I need to just be instantly in a better mood or like if my confidence is shot and I'm doubting myself, still to this day, Minor Threat oh, will get my yeah. game face back on. Just the whole record? No, no like go-to song or not? I mean... Minor Threat itself, yeah. Fucking like you tell me that you like that taste. That yeah. one always <laughs> filler. Oh, filler, so good. I don't want to hear it Ooh. if I'm pissed off at somebody. All of them, and then, and then I used to not listen as much. There's like the more musical ones on the end of the discography and the later seven inches. Mm. But now all the ones fucking Salad Days with the chimes and shit. Yeah, I used to oh, skip yeah. that one when I was a young, younger dude, and dumber guys man. Don't wear white. Dude, and yeah, and dude, and fucking. So we used to cover, and, well, used to cover the, Salad Days all the time. Yeah, man. Dude, salad yeah. Days the best. And what's the the fucking da da da? Steal it, we'll steal your money, steal your show. So good. I still listen to all. I'm bad with the names of songs, but there's no place like home. Nope. So where am I? Where Dude, that's one of those songs that when I'm 15, I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck this means, but I'm all about it. Oh, hell yeah. There's no place like home, but where am yeah. I? Like, I can pretend I know what that means and feel cool for a week off of that shit. Oh, hell yeah. Love that shit. And it hits. Um, this day. I love the beautiful anonymous podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's such a cool thing where people would like, they tweet and send their phone numbers. They, they call you up on the phone. They don't say who they are. You talk to them. They can yeah. say anything they want to you. Yeah. Sometimes it's funny. Is it and heavy? So, sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's real heavy. And I never, we don't really pre-produce it, so I never really know which way it's going to go. You got some crazy phone calls and I, like the one, the, yeah. the one we put out this week is yeah. just a guy who really loves yo-yoing, and he was telling me what's up with yo-yos, and there's a whole scene, and here's who the best yo-yo, here's the guys who wow. did yo-yo into the pod, dude. yo-yo routines that changed the game. Like we get ones like that, and then I've also had multiple calls from people who have like. Their kids have died, and they tell me what that's like. And I don't know what it's going to It's not like I walk in, and they're like, here's who we picked today. It's legit. I tweet it out, and then five, ten minutes later, I'm on the phone with somebody, and they tell me what's going on. There's been some heavy ones, I'm sure. And some very heavy. It's, yeah. The show is more known for the heavy ones than the funny ones, which was a strange. And you can't hang up. I can't hang up. That's the one rule. They can't say their name. I can't hang up. And that's mm. it. And I get some very raw, honest stuff because of that. It must be so heavy, too, because you're not a psychologist. You're, you're a comedian. No. You're a person. My shrink listened to it and yelled at me. She's like, you can't feel this pressure to try to be their shrink. Like, wow. you're not trained in it. Don't You can't try to actually help anybody. She's yeah. like, it's really cool. You're letting people air out their stuff. You're giving it a platform. That's all it can be. You're not trained. She's like, there's a lot of rules and ethics that go into being a therapist. And like, oh, yeah. you're going to fuck your own head up if you try to save all these callers. Oh, yeah. um, so she stepped in in the early days on that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Really Just to guide fear? you kind of through it. Yeah. And, to to kind, and to to also kind of scold me and be like, hey, like people go to school for this to do it in a way that's responsible. Because you can, you can give, if somebody's under mental duress, you can tell them the wrong thing I and know. make it worse. You I know, know man. I bet you you guys must get, run into I, that too. I get too. crazy DMs oh, yeah. like where yeah. sometimes I'll answer, I'll be talking to somebody all day for like eight hours and yeah. trying to connect them to somebody in a Facebook group. And I've done that once before and it, it's like 48 hours of talking to somebody and it was heavy, man, but it, yeah. everything worked out. It's just because I respond. But some I see, I'm like, oh my God, if I could digest that today, respond to that, but I'll definitely get to it. Like I'm not going like, to ignore it. You know, but it's like at the same time, I'm just a person. I'm not a psychologist or a doctor. Yeah. I don't have all the answers. I'm not perfect, but I can just whatever. I can do my best. Yeah, mm. it's just, it's a lot of responsibility. And like I can show you that someone, as you did for me 30 years mm. ago, like I can show you that someone's willing to take some time out of their day. Yeah, and that hopefully well, means a lot. But hopefully that's what you need. I've had a lot of moments like this where it's like hopefully that's what you need. Like if you 
it's hard to reach out to anybody. Yeah. Mm. If you can reach out to a comedian who said some stuff you identify with, you can reach out to a doctor. And yeah. I'm telling you that they can help you more. I've had that conversation a lot in my life. You've been, you've been in therapy most of your life? At this point, yeah, like on and off for 20 years. Most, wow. most, uh, since 2007, on. I just started mm. this past year. Yeah, it's the first time in my family. Nobody really? else has gone to therapy before. Yeah. My brother is my mom. No one like, mm. you've had therapy, that, Rusty? Oh, yeah. It's in, that tough East Coast thing, though. Of like, we don't do that. That's why, that's why a lot of my, like, a lot of dads in my neighborhood, I go, they would be at the bar all night. That, mm-hmm. They did that. Self medication. They did that instead of therapy. That's a therapy. Yeah, you know? that's how they get it out. Yeah, mm. it's heavy, man. It's right? Damaging. I know the heaviest thing with therapy is we. You think you're making a breakthrough, and yeah. you leave, and you're like, mm. "I'm such a better person for what I'm doing yeah. right now," and you know, and I can, I can see the world and not, you know, in not in a violent manner yeah. or something. Yeah. And then someone does something, and instantly you're tested. The minute right. you, the minute you say, "I'm making progress." You're instantly tested right. in New York City. If you're in therapy and you're living in New York City, it's definitely, oh yeah, it will dude. test you every block uh, you walk. <laughs> it's also so interesting to hear that you guys are doing it too because I've joked about it a bunch, but there's a lot of truth too to like the New York hardcore scene that you guys came out of. Mm. I could see it from the outside, not in the early days, but the tail end of it. And it was angry young kids, oh, yeah. mobilized angry young kids, and it was very inspiring. Yeah, but that anger—it's like I just remember having that type of anger in myself, and it's like you hit a point where you're like twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one years old, and it's like I'm still having situations get sabotaged because I'm so angry, mm-hmm. and it's I based a lot of my personality and a lot of my motivation on the anger. Yeah, how do I let it go and trust that I'm still going to be like a motivated person on the other side of it? You know, mm-hmm. that was a big one for me. Yeah. And for us, like, we didn't grow up in New York, but our band was born there. We moved there. I moved there in 1988. You know what I mean? Mm. You soon followed me. And That's we, you know, I Where did up, you guys grow up? I grew up, I was born in Massachusetts. And I lived in Rhode Island. Then I lived in Maryland where I met Rusty. And then I moved to New York by myself. But like To I, move to New York in 1988. It was crazy, dude. That's by crazy. Yourself, I moved to Flushing, Queens with Timmy 18, Chunks. Not even, entry. I think you were just 18 or... Yeah, I moved to New York all by myself. It was just... The city was chaos. I got, I got oh, literally yeah. dropped off at CBGB's and that's where I was... It's crazy. That's man. where you moved to New York. You got dropped off at sea because I was living with Timmy Chunks. I was about to be on the singer from Token Entry because we were pen pals, <laughs> sending letters for years. Yeah, I was a big fan. I met them in D.C. once with Rollins Band. Ended up going to New York on my own, and then like that, everything else happened after that. But like, yeah, you get that tough love in New York that like all those big, all those other bands took us under the wing, and mm-hmm. they grew up a totally different way than we grew up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this tough love where it's like. Yeah. Can't show so emotion. you were with like New York Street kids all of a sudden. Yeah, like kids from that damaged era. Yeah, York. yeah, all wow. kinds of kids, man. Queens and all the skinheads at CBG was. I was like, this is fucking scary. Like we went to shows in DC, but <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Baltimore. a different energy in DC. You know what and I mean? But definitely uh, in the DC compared to the New York. I know for us, me and me and Toby's brother had a band, Roadside Pets, and we'd go to shows and. We're thinking, oh yeah, you know, we want to be part of this scene, and then you'd have a, a skinhead crew from one area would come in and just start smashing everybody. Just like yeah. you talked about going to Jersey shows, <laughs> and kids would come and it's so 
Rectory there would be thing, some shows Bergen County like, Youth Crew. And I, real, I look back, I realize those kids, I bet, didn't even, I think they just wanted to put on hoodies and, and, and fight. Yeah. I, I bet they didn't even listen to much of the music. Mm. I had a friend who told me, uh, this other actor, Diedrich Bader, who people, were, if you Google his name, you'll be like, oh, he's one of the guys on the Drew Carey show. Mm. And he was at all those DC shows. He like grew up going to Minor Threat shows. Wow. And he told me he was Wilson like, it, Center and whatnot. He, That's cool. he told me, he was like, it started to get bad when these Marines used to realize they could go there and like From fight, Virginia and fight stuff kids. Like, he yeah. was like, guys would come from the military bases and be like, oh, we can fight and not get in trouble here. Yeah. And he was like, that's when it kind of got tense and that's a lot of people left. Damn. And that would have been like right. Did you guys see Minor Threat coming up? I see uh, Embrace. You saw Fagazi's like yeah. first or second yeah. show. They handled lyric uh, sheets. It was they, beautiful. We started, uh, that rest? Yeah, we started going to the, those shows in, it was 84, I believe. 84, yeah, in D.C., yeah. That's so and cool. The 83, 83, 82, 83. Just missed my threat, though, man, yeah. Because they weren't around them. all that long at the no, end of the day, No, they weren't. Right? It's such nah. a big impact, though. But did you guys see Bad Brains and all that? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Everyone I've ever talked to came, came up in D.C., I always want to talk about Minor Threat. And at some <laughs> point, they're always like, "What about the we can brains? talk about Minor Threat, but... Bad brains was like the, was like yeah. The HR pinnacle. looked like he could lift the world. Yeah, and he's a, he's a little guy. Yeah, and um, we saw him at the Marble Bar. Yeah, and skinheads destroying people, and you're like, you know what? Bad brains are playing. We don't give a fuck. We're gonna fuck up your crew because we started rolling deep because we had all the, the skater crew like Rob yeah. and all. So we had a, a few people who actually would have your back, and we're like, no, it's not your pit. We're gonna yeah. go to, and HR would command you know like incredible man room. yeah he was it's magical that's awesome you ever he meet was, him no uh, no <laughs> interesting a fan from afar yeah i, I don't even know character. i'd freeze up i'd freeze up um <laughs> we have a mutual friend robbie hoffman oh she was right. on my podcast she was on, not Chappelle. too long ago right she's um, and robbie's starting to really blow up amazing, i think in la right amazing starting to take Spoke doing so, clubs so and all shows now give you so much props and love and like her Dude, time with you and we we had so the Gethard show got to cable and I tried to hire everybody who'd been working on it. But then a very cool thing happened where like I managed to hire some friends now that we had a budget and like one of our writers got hired to SNL. One of our writers got hired away by Fallon. And that was a point of pride for me of like, good, the big shows are noticing. They're hiring yeah, our writers. That's totally, cool. Yeah. And we needed a writer. And we had, there was one stretch where we lost two writers who were women and we started taking submissions. And the best one by far, I get it, and we don't read the names because I, I didn't want to like show favoritism to friends potentially. Yeah. So I'm like, this one, I, I think I, because I was like, I'm going to read every single packet. There were, I think, f 400. Jeez. But I was like, I know for a fact I've written packets that didn't get read. I'm not doing that to other artists. I'm reading every single one. Yeah. 400 packets. I tell you this one, I go, this is the best one by far. Why does it have to be by some dude named Robbie Hoffman? <laughs> like, we just lost two <laughs> writers who are women. I'm not trying to have. All dudes in the writer's room, not yeah. because I'm like trying to be overly woke, but because I actually believed like you can't just not have, you can't just be a whole bunch of white dudes. Yeah. It's, it's not going to be like, I need other, I know what that perspective is. I need other people. Yeah. And then I Google and we only had one or two mutual friends who were like Canadian comics. I was like, who is this person? Mm. I find out you're like a non-binary who's raised Hasidic and left. Uh, well, this is. And you she's, had the best packet? Yo, she's so incredible, man. She's, she's got so the funny. most amazing life story I've ever heard. <laughs> and on top of it, it's like so fun. Robbie's a person who's so funny but is so mean to me that generally when we run into each other, 
I, within like three minutes, I'll have to be like, Robbie, you're hilarious. It's hurting my feelings. We got to have an honest conversation now. And she'll do it with me. She doesn't do it with everybody. Mm. But she can crush you with bits. She's really good. Uh, crap. She's incredible. Oh, my man. God. She's, one of the best. She's so, I saw her perform with Chappelle, and I was like, do you remind me of the female rap report? Like, just something about your energy. This Nonstop. Energy. She's uh, incredible, man. Relentlessly funny and confident and Doing really good so right now, good. too. I'm yeah. stoked, really stoked for her. Yeah, and I, I was like... Hired Rob. Robbie had been writing mostly like kids television in Canada and then had moved out to LA. And I think our show was the first like pure comedy writing job Robbie had. And now Robbie's starting to blow up. And I'm so psyched. So psyched. Yeah. There's a bunch. Do you know Will Miles? Will Miles moved out here a year ago. He was on our writing staff. So fucking funny. He just had a kid. So he, he pro- I haven't spoken to him. He's probably on the scene a little less, but. Yeah, our writer Julio Torres, who was on, he had his own HBO, and, and Anna Fabrega. They had um, Los Espookies on HBO. They were two of my writers. Joe Firestone is like a very beloved alt comic in New York. Like, my writer's room was sick. It was sick. Nice. <laughs> I got to hire so many of the best people. And then, you know, Drew and Noah and JD and Greg, like all these guys who were there from the start, just great, great people. Um, I saw that uh, you, were, you have the other podcast too in New Jersey. Yeah, so that I mentioned. So my friend Mike D. Jersey is the world podcast. So Mike D. was the guy who threw the first punk show I ever went to in the um, basement of the church. Bonaduce was the guy who his backyard was where Less Than Jake played in ninety ninety. So the pods with them ninety four. So they went to Rutgers. My brother went to LaSalle. So I got to Rutgers and linked up, and his friends became my friends. That's cool. Um, and we're me and my brother, Irish brother. So there's times where we've like battled where he's like, why'd you steal my friend? I'm like, I didn't, I just went to the same college as them and I knew them. We're friends now. It's fine. Um, but yeah, like we, we, I was doing some live streaming stuff during the pandemic and I had Mike on actually to tell that story about when he saw the guy in Port Authority ripping his teeth mm, out. Yeah. It was so fun. We were all bored during the pandemic. So now we do a podcast that's just all about our love of New Jersey. And uh, you know, what's really cool. We do all sorts of stuff with it. Some that's like nostalgia, some that's history, some that, you know, all food reviews, I, all this Jersey stuff. But we we also do a thing where we interview small business owners around the state. Oh, that's cool. It is fucking astounding how no matter who you talk to, if they're running a cool business in New Jersey right now, they came up going to shows in New Brunswick and Asbury Park. Wow. Awesome. It's like all punk. And then like people who run restaurants and they're like, oh yeah, no, I was at this show and that show. Like. People who run, it's not like I'm finding people who are running like an anarchist bookstore. It's like yeah. you run, you own a restaurant, you own a furniture, like a guy who in Asbury Park, he like goes and he finds furniture at yard sales and then like touches it up and resells it. Punk guy. I didn't know before. Awesome. You know, it's like yeah. everyone, everyone doing something cool in New Jersey. It goes back to New Brunswick, Asbury awesome, Park, man. Jersey yeah. City, Hoboken, Maxwell shows. And Asbury yeah. Park is insane right now. Dude. It's a totally oh, yeah. different place, Yo, man. I got Asbury Park story. You guys, did you play the old Asbury Park? Yeah, oh, yeah. a million yeah. times. Were you like Fury of Five and all these bands? And... Were you playing like the Pony and stuff? Yes. Yeah, yeah dude. We used to go to shows there as it kids. Was sketchy, man. It was <laughs> like park as close to the Stone Pony as you can. Oh yeah. Exactly. When the show is over, you get to the car as fast as you can. You get the fuck. Out of that abandoned nightmare oh, of a yeah. town, it's, and now it's the fucking hippest spot on the Jersey Shore. All those, all those old Victorians. Oh yeah, crumbling. They're all. Oh yeah, bought and sold. Yeah, well, the the gay community came and bought up the Victorians, and yeah. like Chelsea in New York, yeah. totally changed around the tenor it's of the town. So yeah. freaking nice there, man. Now. I once, so I worked at a magazine for years. It was this fanzine called Weird New Jersey. Okay. All about haunted places in New Jersey. Mm. What's well, the hotel supposedly is, but okay. there's all kinds of haunted places in New Jersey. 
And uh, we had our Halloween party at the Stone Pony one year. This was in like 2000 or 2001. And I brought a bunch of my friends from Rutgers. And I got a hotel room at one of the only nice hotels in town at that time. And I was working the merch table first half. My bosses were like, work the merch table. Then you can hit up the bar party. We got the hotel room. Yeah. Have fun. I had three or four friends from Rutgers there. I'm done with the merch table. My buddies run up to me. They're like, yo, Katie's. Katie, she went really hard. She's like blacking out. You got to get her out of here. I was like, all right. She was, she was like my best friend at the time. I was madly in love with her too. Okay. Um, so dude, she's this little, we're like 21 years old. She's tiny little five foot three, five foot four little blonde college girl dressed as a pumpkin. And I have to drag her from the Stone Pony to the Berkeley Hotel which in Asbury Park, back it's at the other end. Yeah, and I'm telling you, you guys can vouch for me. Half-built buildings, abandoned in the Sketchy middle of spot. streets. Oh, yeah, it's creepy. Like people yelling at me from under the boardwalk. A guy yelling at me from an abandoned hotel, going like, "Get that girl out of here! You gotta get that girl out of here, man! It's not fucking safe." Like people warning me. Damn. Like drug addicts warning me, like, "Get out of here! What are you doing?" And I'm dragging her down. It was one of the when I it was one of the scariest experiences I ever. That ever sounds had. scary, man. It was really bad. I remember we saw that pig's head on the beach with a cigarette in his mouth. Like, in Asbury Park? Uh, <laughs> you fucking serious? <laughs> a pig's head on. smoking a cigarette? Yeah, just a head with a cigarette in his mouth on the beach. Yeah, it's a head, uh, a huge head of a pig. Remember that shit? Oh, yeah. I remember Fury of Five. Keep pulling the mic to your first because you have a soft voice. Yes. Um, <laughs> Fury of Five was like banned from there, but every time we play, or probably their friends, they just pull up and just push all the bouncers and just come in and see us play, then leave. Oh, yeah. They were banned from there. Yo, we'll come to see them. They come right through. So were big dudes. They just bum rush the venue just to watch us and they leave. It was crazy, man. Crazy mm. shows at Stone Pony, man. Rancid, oh, yeah. Bouncing Souls. Yeah. So yeah. many great memories there, but it was a sketchy spot, man. It was a man. very oh, yeah. sketchy yeah. town. When you go today, it's the, it's the coolest, hippest town. It's oh, yeah. starting to even turn into like a little too much, you know? Yeah. You get, also, you guys, food. I haven't even, you know who the hardcore band was that scared us so bad in Jersey? Hmm. I'll give you one. It's not Fury 5? wasn't Fury 5. Oh, E-Town Concrete. No, E-Town Concrete, everybody no loves in Jersey, though. Yeah. Everybody loves. I'm not as familiar oh, yeah. with them, but I have friends who are like, E-Town Concrete is our guys, and we will fucking kill for them. Do you know that this singer is a huge hip-hop mogul, and he found Little Dicky, and he's a part of hip-hop, like insane, the singer Really? Is. Yes. Yeah. Good for Man. him. Anthony. He's Man, he's E-Town Concrete. Yeah. No, I think Who's they were a New York band. They used to come out to Jersey. I know it is. I know you're going to say. Who? Hang on a second. Rusty. No, okay, I hope not. Let's see what you said. Dude, they would show up at show, like you said, push their way into shows to watch, and we'd just go, dude, Bulldoze is here. Let's get the oh, fuck out of here. Oh, shit. Bulldoze showed up. Let's get the fuck out of here. Legit. No. Bulldoze, legit. He just passed dude, away the singer. I here. heard about that, man. Bulldoze, I, I remember being at shows. Bulldoze would show up to watch shows, and my older friends, like my older brother and his friends would be like, I'd be like, but we haven't seen the band we came to play yet. They're like, we do not fucking care. <laughs> Get <laughs> out of here! If Bulldoze is here. We're not Soul's being. Someone's gonna here. get hurt. They, that guy Kevon, right? Yeah, yeah. Kevon. Kevon scared us, man. Rest was it Kevon? Oh yeah, Kevon. I remember he jumped up the stage and put a footprint on our friend Chris's chest. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, I think it was at a Warzone show, um, Chris comes backstage, bloody nose, and he's like, "Yeah, Kevin just fucking smashed me in the face in the pit." But we're all and friends. We're, we're friends. friends. We're friends. Yeah. So what was he just gonna do to some fucking little shits from Jersey? You know. <laughs> Dude, we went and saw Helmet played at Montclair State University at yeah. an outdoor amphitheater for free. Yeah. We were all like, let's go That's see. Let's go see. I saw them at there, and I saw Mephiscopheles. You know them? The Satanic oh, yeah. Ska Band? Yeah. I saw them at Montclair State. They played State. Warped Tour. In. And oh, dude, yeah. they were fucking funny. 
Helmet was playing and we went and saw them live and they were tearing it up and then all of a sudden you saw the crowd part and it was just Kev from Bulldoze walking and the crowd parting and we were like, time to go. Bulldoze at a Helmet show? No fucking thanks, man. That's not going to end well for anybody. No, it was a crowd party. Yeah, like, it was yeah, everyone knew who that guy was and everybody's getting out of his way and we were just, you could just sense like, mm. I can't speak to his mentality but it's like, whatever he's here for, yeah, he's going to get it Yeah, <laughs> and it's not necessarily going to end well for other people. Yeah. Oh, you could no. feel it. You could feel it. Watch this transition. Is that a lot, that's a lot different when you see Robin Williams walking into your green room? Wow. But dude, that was a great night of my life. That was one of the best nights of my life. I read, I read the whole thing on your yeah, website. Yeah, I was a, he, he was a guy. He was one of the people I loved as a kid. Like we transitioned from that negative scariness to Robin Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, Robin Williams showed up at UCB sometimes, and it happened two or three times in New York when, in my history there. And, and uh, I, 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 At least one of them I performed with him. And he was so gentle and nice. And, and one of the things I always think about is with improv, there are rules that you were taught in classes. I read you didn't up. follow them, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And like, it's a faux pas to like cut somebody else off or steal somebody's idea. Or take or, too much time. Yeah, exactly. Put the focus on you and never pass the ball back, you know? Mm. He broke every rule, but when I tell you it was like, he, he beamed with such positivity that it superseded every rule, everybody would agree with that. Whereas like, Chevy Chase showed up at UCB sometimes and nobody would say the same thing about him. Like mm-hmm. that was so that was Got sometimes you. heartbreaking. Okay. That was sometimes like, oh, I'm meeting one of my heroes. Yeah. And it's not it wasn't always he could it wasn't always bad. Yeah. But times where you'd just be like, Oh, like this is this is unpleasant to see one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. There was one story where Rob Hubel, who's a great comedian who came out of UCB, one and this has been printed in magazines and stuff, so I'm okay sharing it. <laughs> one day apparently Chevy Chase was in the green room and Hubel walked in and was like, Holy shit, and went up to him and was like I grew up on your stuff and a big part of why I'm doing this is because of your movies. Like, I want it to be you. That's why I signed up to do this. Yeah. And Chevy Chase didn't say a word and just cocked back and slapped him across the fucking face. <laughs> and like, there was an article about the history of UCB <laughs> where that was brought up and they asked Chevy Chase and he's like, I must have been doing a bit. And I'm oh. sure he was, but like his bit was, I'm going to slap you in the face to see what you do. Like, And Holy to see shit. that, Robin Williams... It was Damn. the best. And the other thing I never forgot was they had a cooler of beer in the green room. I read that. It's great. And I, he just looked at me at one point. And he goes, oh, you guys aren't making it easy for me tonight, huh? And I was like, I turned to one of the people who worked at the theater. I was like, put the beer out in the hallway tonight, man. Wow. Like, let's do it. Help the guy out, you know? But I also never forgot, too. Like, he did Ask Cat. He did the first half. He was like, I'm just going to do the first half. Is that cool? We were like, of course. And we do intermission. He's like, I got to do the second half. Mm-hmm. Then in between the shows, he was there with, I, I, I don't know if it was his girlfriend, wife at the time. Um, but she came back in the green room and he was like, I have to do the second show. I'm so sorry. I have to. And I was like, Oh, right. Like this is an addiction. He's loving Uh, this crowd response and like this dopamine is in his brain mm -hmm, and he can't let it go. Mm -hmm. And I've been there. I've been there, but I saw it Mm -hmm. and it was like, it was wild. It It was so funny. Some asshole in the crowd. One of the shows we go, can we have a suggestion to start the show? And somebody goes flubber, like yells out one of the names of his movies that people didn't like. Mm. And he, I, I started to get mad because that was a show I did every week and I would host it. And I, would, I kind of felt like this is a guest in my house. Yes. And yeah, I started to be like, shots. hey. And he said something that was just so charming but also hard, like something along the lines of just like, hey, yeah, I can take the jokes too. I don't just have to say them. By all means, you can, you can pick on old Robin. Like, and, and, but everybody started cheering and clapping with the way he said it. 
which is like, man, this guy is like very pure of heart and very genuine. Damn. It was really cool. It was really cool. That's a beautiful moment to be, be yeah, part of that. Yeah, that. definitely. Sorry I talked bad about Chevy Chase, but it's, okay. it was just such a dichotomy mm. between the two. And I read that you were at some like vegan restaurant or something when you heard the news about Robin. Yeah, I was with some friends at a restaurant um, down near like Washington Square Park. And all of a sudden, my one my friend, Noah Foreman, he wrote on my show, he just was like, <sighs> we're like, what? And he's like, Robin Williams died? And I remember mm. right away being like, he killed himself. And everyone was mm. like, yeah. Which was like, yeah, so sad. You yeah, know? he was one of the guys who seemed to have pushed through it so hard. You know, mm-hmm. after having that attached to his reputation for so long. Yeah, it's really brutal. Really brutal. Mm. Your um, here's another switch to something positive. Um, your father. Yeah, which I love. And your kid's four now. He's four. He his fourth birthday. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, he just turned four on Monday, two days ago. Awesome, man. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing, right? It's the best. It's the best. It's so hard. It's so exhausting. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, I'm like, my career the past few years, I have felt the momentum go. And some of that is like I'm older. And some of that's I don't have time to be out on the scene every night, doing shows mm. every night, rubbing elbows with people. Mm. And then some of it is like, I want to be home with this kid. Yes. I can hopefully pick up and do shows later, but like, now he loves me. Being around in a few years, he's not gonna. He's gonna think I'm lame. No, he won't. <laughs> we'll see. You know, but like he'll hit a point where he wants to go hang out with his friends totally. when he's a teenager. Okay. Now, if but I'm home and I'm down to play with him, he's like, yes, yeah, you're a superhero. That's the, to him, that's yeah, the best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily need to go out and do ten shows a week anymore. I'll do one or two, but I mean, you know, like if you're only doing one or two shows in New York, you're not even really a comedian at that point. Mm. You're not putting your foot on the gas at all. Yeah. So. It's a sacrifice, but Do you feel it's like you so have to go harder now because you have a kid? I stress about money more than I ever have. Totally. You know? Yeah. Like, I lost my health insurance during the pandemic, and that was one of the scariest things ever to realize, mm-hmm. like, oh, I've always had, as an artist, I get it through the Screen Actors Guild, and I'm like, if I lose my health insurance, I'll just pray I don't get sick. But a kid? You can't do yeah, that. I know. You can't do that. It's hard. So that was very sobering, and that rearranged my priorities, and, and, uh. I'm actually I'm I'm starting next month. I'm actually going to start doing a bunch of work for this great mental health nonprofit called Wellness Together, and they're going to give me health insurance to come do a bunch of work, helping to organize artists to come like do fundraisers for them and awesome. and do like programming with kids in schools. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm like, am I quitting on my dream? Like I've done this for 23 years and I've been relatively successful. Yeah. And then I sit there. I've talked with friends of mine where I'm like, I feel good about this, but I'm worried I'm quitting. And I've had a few friends of mine to be like, the dude we knew in 2011, 2009, when you were like doing the Gethard show and pissing in diapers and (laughs) going on public access TV and trying to get your favorite bands. Like if you asked that guy in 2010, hey, you could move to LA and do pilot season or you could do a bunch of work for a mental health nonprofit helping to get artists into schools to interact with kids. That guy would have 1000% chosen to do what you're about to do. Yeah, could have been like, why would I go do pilot season if I could do this other thing that helps people hands on? It's important to you so too. It is. Yeah. It is. So I try to let the self doubt go and try to try to embrace all the many positives of it because mm-hmm. there's a lot of self doubt. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of self doubt and going. I'm gonna have a day job for the first time in 23 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been your own boss the whole time, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. You used to do writing for people and all that stuff. 
I I do a lot of stand up, which is writing for myself, my podcast. Yeah. Um, I try to pick up acting work now that I'm getting my health insurance through this nonprofit. I don't need to scramble. Last year, I did acting jobs where I was gone from my house for seven weeks between LA and Vancouver, and I just sit there and I go, "It's a cool life. I'm not down about it, and I am not trying to complain about getting acting gigs." But right now, seven weeks away from my kid is Brutal. the headline. No matter yeah. what the acting gig is, yes. yeah. it does not outshine the fact that I spent seven weeks of my son's life not with him, and I just can't mentally handle that right now. Yeah. So, I just saw you filmed a new special, Father and the Son. I well, I, I recorded it. It's going to come out on Audible soon. It's just okay. the audio version of it. They're okay. getting it. They're now buying specials, which is I'm very glad that they wanted to pay me for a special because <laughs> it's always nice <laughs> to make some money. But yeah, a lot of that is. It's a show where I start talking a lot about my son, and it it feels like, okay, comedian had a kid. He's now is his kid special. That's kind of a trope. But halfway through, I wound up telling a story about this thing my dad did when I was young. That I just understand now that I have a kid, where yeah. he basically threatened to kill one of my my brother's bullies. He cornered a teenager in a parking lot in our town. Wow! And was like, That's fucking awesome. Basically, told him the day you turn eighteen. Don't Coming ever, for you. He, it's a spoiler of the show, but he, oh shit, sorry. No, it's all good. But he <laughs> just because it's amazing what he did, where he was. He basically said to this kid, I, "You're 17 now," and the kid was like, "So what?" And he's like, "Well, I'm gonna wait a year, and I see you walking a lot around town." And he's like, "Just so you know, if someday I have an accident and hit you with my car, I'm gonna hit you so hard it takes them weeks to find your fucking body in the woods." Oh my like, god! Like, bro. He's like, "I see you walking on Eagle Rock Avenue along those woods, and guess what?" I get really tired behind the wheel when I've been working late and it's really dark in that stretch of road and I just have this bad feeling. They're going to find your fucking body weeks later. Like, oh, that terrified this kid. Terrified this kid. And I always laughed at that story. Yo. And I always had a part of myself that was like, oh, my dad was kind of fucked. Like, my dad's the best. Don't give me your car course style. Dude, my dad is a <laughs> North Jersey fucking. My dad's got a PhD in environmental science. He's a smart, brilliant guy. But he's got North Badass. he's got North Jersey working class in him to his core too. And he's your dad, and that's what dads do. <laughs> but that's when I never understood. That's what the show's really about. Where I'm mm. like, I always thought that my dad was kind of nuts. That my dad had a side of him that could snap and be nuts. Now you get it. That's though. what that story was for me until the day my son was born. And I was like, uh, oh, my dad wasn't nuts. My dad was scared and needed to take action and was being a good dad. And the scared. day my son was born, I was like, all these things where I thought my dad had this insane side. They make sense now, that's and incredible. that's what the show's about. That's really, amazing. Your dad's amazing, <laughs> dude. He had a couple. He had a couple. That kid didn't tell his parents or the police or nothing, or that took that threat like seriously. And no, the police never showed up at the door, man. But that's when it what was. If he told that. What if he told his parents? You know what I mean? Yeah. Dude, well, not trying to talk. You know, who knows? My yeah. parents had already talked to those parents, okay, okay, and told okay. him, told them, Many this shit times. has to stop. Okay. And and when I tell you, yeah. when I tell you, he confronted one of my brother's bullies. My brother had a lot of bullies. My dad okay. wasn't going after all of them. Okay. This kid did some stuff that if I told you off mic what they did to my brother, okay. you'd be like, something needed to happen. Okay. And my dad was like, oh yeah, I've talked to his parents. We've talked to the school. Nothing. I guess it's got to be me. I guess I got to drive. I guess I got to drive around until I find this kid and I have to put the fear of death in him. Yeah. It wasn't warranted by nothing. Did that, did that change like your whole perspective of your dad? Obviously, respect and like understanding. and I'll tell you. I, I mentioned before, like, I got in a lot of fights growing up. And some of it was because my, bro my brother is a sweet, sweet guy. He didn't want to fight. I remember my dad being like, if you see them coming, you hit them first. 
If yeah. they do hit you, you hit them harder. You, ha- my dad once, my mom still, she's like, my mom's like, the right. only thing I ever got mad about. He once told my brother, "You pick up a rock, you bash in their skull if you have to," and my dad <laughs> meant it. And my brother was like, "Stop, you're crazy." And I remember I was sitting on our steps watching it. it was, they were in the living room. My dad was so like, "You gotta learn how to fight." My dad goes, "You pick up a rock, you bash in their skull if you." Have to. And I remember sitting on my steps and I was like, uh-huh, yeah. "Got it." And that was me. And my dad still today, my dad is like, you'd get in fights at school and I'd have to go pick you up and it'd be you and the other kids sitting there and he'd be like, the kid's a, f-, like he'd be driving me home. He'd be like, the kid's 12 inches taller than you. What the fuck are you doing? I'd be like, he fucked with me, dad. Hmm. There was one, I remember one kid in gym class, <laughs> he threw me on the ground and I landed on all the badminton equipment. They had the badminton net set up in the gym class and I, without hesitation, took a badminton racket and smashed it over this guy and broke it in half. And everybody was watching it and was like, okay, Gethard's little, but he's fucking nuts. Like, yeah, yeah, he's nuts, but he, he's wild. And people did still mess with me from time to time, but a lot less. You know what I mean? Yeah. A yeah. lot less. And they at least knew, like, okay. It's not going to be easy. Like, it, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> like, you're probably going to win the fight. Like, you're probably going to actually take half of this badminton racket and beat the shit out of me with one of these broken badminton halves. But like, it's going to go that far with me. And a lot of that was because of my dad. So Uh, I had to unwrap some of that, but it was also a gift in a lot of ways. Yeah. But when I had my kid, I was like, oh, that's where that all came from. Just this frustration and this fear and this like... Protection rage. Protection (laughs) and like nobody's being like... I went to a school that was very concerned with property values in a suburban town. Like, okay, like... Stuff happened that the police should be at this school looking mm-hmm. into it. And not just with my brother, a lot of times. And it just didn't happen. And you look back now as a grown-up and you're like, oh, because they didn't want property values to go down. They didn't want school rate. They didn't want people yeah. to know how dark it was getting in this fucked up violent environment. So it just doesn't get reported. Yeah. It's not being run up the chain. You know, like that stuff. I sensed that when I was a kid. And I was like, adults, you can't trust them. And I look back now, I realized my dad was going like, all right, you guys don't want to do anything? I'll start killing kids, I guess. Like, I'll kill kids. You guys don't want to give them a suspension? Okay. I guess I'll just run them over with my car if I have to. There's a few stories like that with him. And He's a I, badass, man. I've always loved all those stories. He's also, also, I'll say, too, because you guys are seeing me. My dad, I look like my mom's side of the family. My dad's 6'2", 220. Okay. He's pretty big. Okay. Like, not, not the biggest guy ever, but, like, big enough that you don't want him cornering you in the parking lot of the local church saying, yeah. I'm going to run you over with my car. Like it, it, he, he could, but now I get it. He was a papa bear and I understand yeah. that for the first time and I kind of love it. Yeah, I kinda love it love too. It. That's, that's yeah. an incredible story, man. Yeah. It's like a movie, man. He's had, he had a few movie moments growing up. <laughs> he once, some kids once vandalized our house. They had done it a couple times and he started sleeping on the front. This was when I was a baby. So I've only heard this. My mom loves clowning on him. He's so embarrassed by the story. I'm sorry that. But he, uh, used to, he started sleeping under a pile of like blankets on our front porch. These kids were kicking. We had an aluminum front door. And this, we lived in a pretty, you know, it was just working class mm-hmm. kids, kids with parents who had problems. These kids were roaming the streets, causing trouble in the 80s. And they kept kicking in this aluminum door. And my dad had like hung it himself. And, you know, it was like the, the first house he ever bought. He was proud of it. And they did it. He hammers out the door. Gets it all smooth again. They do it again. Oh, so he starts sleeping out there and he sleeps out there a couple of nights. My mom's like, you're sleeping in a nest of blankets. This is fucking nuts. So he goes back to his bed that night. He's like, you're right. I'm being nuts. They kick in the door that night. He's like, motherfuckers. You know, <laughs> he's like, motherfuckers. Like, That's the night I should have been there. So he goes out there again. And one night 
they come and he hears them whispering. Da, da, da. He's like, oh shit, I think it's them. He hears them coming up the front steps and then like bam, bam, bam on the door. And he fucking fly, the door fly. He starts chasing these kids. We live right near this park, Colgate Park. He chases them into the park, but they used to hang out there at night. And he didn't realize there was a parking lot that they used to hang a chain across, uh, stop cars. He hit the chain and he went face first. He was like covered head to toe in mud. Uh, he stuck corners. This park was built on a hill and the hill ended on a wall, like on a baseball field. So you can imagine like a half circle outfield walled in. Yeah. These kids are all pinned against the wall, like trying to climb up and get out. And he's got them. And he's again, he's a big guy. He goes up to them and he, he goes, uh, which one of you kicked in the door? And none of them are ratting. He's like, who kicked the fucking door? Who kicked the fucking door? And no one would say anything. And he goes, I didn't actually know this till a couple of years ago. They told me the whole story. I always knew how he threatened them, but it was, it was more specific. He goes, okay, you guys don't want to tell me? Then you. And he just points at one of the kids and he goes, you. And he's he, like, this is a neighborhood. Everybody grew up. My, my aunts, uncles, cousins, like everybody's families, multiple generations. Everybody knew it. He's like, I know your name. He's like, I know which family you're from. He dropped the kid's last name. He's like, I know your dad. I know where you live. He's like, okay, so I know you. So you don't want to tell me who did it? Then I'm coming to you, and I'm going to crush you with a pipe. He's like, I got a pipe back at my house. I'm going to get the pipe. I'm going to cave your fucking skull in. You want to tell me who it was now? And then the fucking cop, dude, then the cops showed up. Oh, my God. And he's like... He's like, of course, goes back to being my dad. He's like, officers, I'm so glad you're here. They're, they're like, no, Yo, you're, the you're the mud-covered 220-pound man threatening teenagers. Like, we got to deal with you first. Oh, oh shit. Man. But um, he didn't get arrested. They knew these kids were like, they were trouble. They had dealt with these kids before, so they're yeah, like, all right, dude. pains in the ass. Jesus, He's like, they've dude. been kicking in my door for two weeks. They're like, get the fuck out of here. And then it turned out my mom called the police. My mom was like, I got, because I, I was a baby. My brother was two and a half. My mom's like, he's going to go to jail. I'm going to have to raise these kids by myself. Oh, she gosh. called the cops on my dad. Oh, and was no. like, he's going to fucking kill somebody. You got to get there before he does. Oh, like, he had shit. that in him. He had that in him. Is, I, he, is he way uh, too old now? He's, dude, when my son, w- I'll never forget, when I still lived in Queens, my son was born out there. We had my son in the little rocker, and my parents were visiting. I came out of the one room, and I saw my dad rolling around on the floor in front of my son. He's going like, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, like waving his fingers in front of my kid. I honestly had a moment where I was like, who the fuck is this man? You had this in this you? Guy. You had this Where's in this you thing? the whole time? Yeah. Like, I didn't uh, even think this existed. Like, ooh, 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 like playing with him. He plays with my son now in a way that I'm sure I had at some point. He also had to be the disciplinarian. Yeah. My mom did a lot of the when your father gets home thing to dis and that was not fair. There were times where I look back where I realized my dad walked home. He just wanted to eat his food. And meanwhile, he walks in and his sons are like visibly like, Oh shit, he's home. Yeah. That's not how you want to come home, you know? And then you got to be that guy. Cause you got to back up my mom. It was like a lot of that. And he was also stressed out about money all the time. Now he's retired. What was his job? He start- he worked in the pharmaceutical industry, which is a big deal in New Jersey. And he started out like very low level and then just worked his way up. And then a very funny story is like my, my family, we grew up middle class in a neighborhood where like my, my mom's parents were immigrants from Ireland. Yeah. And like there were families in our neighborhood where it was tough where you're like, oh, those kids, like there was a family that lived a few blocks away where their windows didn't have glass in them. They had like plastic sheets over the yeah. windows. And mm-hmm. it's like, I looked back at that. It's one of those things where, again, where I was just like, that's not fucking right that nobody 
like those there were kids in there yeah like mm-hmm. that's not right you know so um my family was like stable middle class and we grew up with people who were kind of from that down to like working class who had to fight you know like that was my neighborhood my whole life so my dad wound up working for years at Pfizer Pharmaceuticals which in 1998 put out Viagra now the thing about Pfizer was mm. a lot of their employees used to grumble because they wouldn't they, everybody wanted a bonus like just a check cut us a check at Christmas they mm. wouldn't do that they give you stocks stock options uh. all these people are like what the fuck are stocks Yo. All, all of a sudden Viagra comes out in 1998 and everybody cashed in their stock options. My dad was like, I knew guys who drove forklifts for 40 years who became millionaires overnight because oh, they had never shit. touched these stock options because they were working class people, not oh, stock market yeah. people. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, yo, the stocks just went up by like 1,500% <laughs> in a week. Cash in. Oh, hell yeah. And so people, you know, stock options, like you're able to buy a stock at the rate it was set at when they gave you the options. Yeah. So it's like, you can buy it for a dollar and sell it for $180 right now. Damn. Like lottery. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, my family had some money for the first time. And my dad was never oh, had sold them back then. Yeah, yeah. My and my dad was just—he was never ostentatious. We moved a couple towns away to a town that didn't have as many rough edges, and our life was very similar. But I just had this sense that there was financial stability mm. for the first time, and my dad chilled out a lot. Thank you for when that happened. Yeah, and my and my our last name spells Gethard, <laughs> and my dad's name is Ken. His name is Ken yeah. Gethard. Oh my and he god, made, like, dude. This money on Viagra. <laughs> and that was like it was really really weird. I think I, get hard. Oh I think I was god. 18 when that happened and to go like my whole childhood living one way amongst type of people that I understood yeah. and that had its problems and that was in some ways scary, you know, but where I'm like I understand it to all of a sudden go like, "Oh, I can feel that there's stability now in a way we haven't had." Mm. And to just go like Oh, it's like both wow. a weight off the shoulders and then also reiterated a lot of feelings I always had about just like, 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 like I said, shit where it would be like, you'd see families where everybody knew it was stuff and no, nobody helping teachers, not helping the town, yeah. not helping nobody helping and yeah. be like, it's so fucking unfair. And I still, I still have a lot of those feelings today. Yeah. My friend Nick makes fun of me. Cause he's like, dude, you've been on TV now. You've had some projects that have gone big. He's like, we all know you have made some money in your life. Like you hosted a TV show yeah. and you will still on our New Jersey podcast. If someone brings up the town of Short Hills, I'll be like, those fucking rich kids thought they were better than us. He's like, <laughs> dude, we all know you made money. At, like we all, I'm like, I know I got to drop this shit at some point, but it's in there. It's still in there. You oh, know, yeah. fuck still in there you bring up certain towns in new jersey i'm like those fucking kids thought they were so much better than us he's like uh-huh. yeah probably because they were man like they had <laughs> stable lives like those they had spoiled good, ass rich kids <laughs> i still am like they fucking thought they were better than us he's yeah. like you are 43 and a dad now man like when are you gonna get over this so i've been i've been working on you're that. working on that <laughs> i have been working on that you're in a good like, place now yeah like people aren't inherently bad if they have money like it's what you choose to do with your life totally you know yeah. like it's and for a long time, I was like, the rich kids are the reason. It's like, you know, nah. It's like, nah, not really. Yeah. In some cases, there were spoiled kids who made life shittier, but it's not inherently, it doesn't make you bad. And I'm learning that. That's Even nice. though I've made some money in my life, not a ton, enough that I like own a nice house in Jersey. Nice, you know, man, like, good. You can own a house. Good for you, man. But I still am like, ah. Do you have any major regrets in your life? Oh, yeah, so many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, d- I regret that I was never in a band. Okay. 
Um, it's never too late for that. But I was in a Morrissey cover band for a while. There you go. Nice. Dressed up as Morrissey with some friends of mine. That was my little dabbling to fe- <laughs> feel like the front man. Um, what else? You know, definitely some professional regrets along the way. Um, sometimes where I didn't believe in myself and I realized I should have. Sometimes yeah. where my own, a lot of my regrets are times where I look back and I go, my path to having a career took a lot longer purely because of my self-doubt. You got in the way of yourself, kind of. A lot of people. A lot of people believed in me more than I believed in myself. That's probably still true. Um, so some of those things, definitely. You know, being a kid who wasn't confident. There's like a couple times I look back on where I'm like, oh, that girl in college really liked me, and I had a feeling she mm. wanted me to make a move, and I didn't because I had doubted myself, and you know, things things like that. The basic regrets everybody has, but as far as big ones. Um, nothing huge. Yeah, I think I, I don't know that I always made the right choices. I don't know that things always went the way I went wanted them to. But I think I always generally did things for the right reasons, at least. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of that does go back to music. You know, yeah, a lot of that. Ethics. Yeah. A lot of that does go back to like I, you know, like when we were trying to sell our show from public access to cable, I had not one but two networks say, "We want to buy your show." Which would have changed my whole life. Yeah. And they said, but, you know, I had all these people on screen with me, like four or five people on screen, going, okay, but we want you to still host it, but we need, we need to hire a different. Yeah, these are my friends. I'm we need to hire, friends. we we need to hire different sidekicks, basically. Yeah. And me going, absolutely not. No. Two different networks that I was like, I'm so sorry, I can't. Mm. When it would have changed my life, you know? Mm. But I'm like, we built this together for a half decade. My name is on it. I'm the one who benefits the most from that. It also means I need to be the most responsible and try to sacrifice the most at times. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to abandon my friends now, you know? And uh, No. It's, like, I think it's awesome you did that. Yeah. I, think, I think I always did things the right way. Yeah. So the regrets, the regrets are there, but they're small, and uh, they're far outweighed by the fact that I feel very lucky that I got to have a career with like a lot of fun and a lot of joy. Yeah, doing what you love, yeah. Yeah, and now I have a kid, and I get to maybe like take my foot off the gas and just raise him and keep trying to make art but have a different safety net than I've ever had. And work help you with mental health issues. Yeah. Like that. That's awesome. And man. I still feel self-doubt every day. I still sit and question, like, well, how did my momentum... I had a TV show, and then it ended. Mm-hmm. kind of never got back to that place. What did I do? Mm-hmm. You know, I still have all those questions about like, how come it just feel, I've, I can feel that I'm less relevant than I used to be. I can feel that I'm less hip than I used to be. What happened? And then on my best days, I'm like, you just grew up. And that's, yeah. that's what happens. You know who the most relevant for is your son. Yeah. yeah. Big time. And it's the it's most like, incredible things. It's making probably more important than, yeah. There's, and, and also like, to also be aware enough to be like, there's also, like I felt angry and driven to be like, I want to make a show for bullied kids, you know? But yeah. also, I'm like, I'm 43 now, and I own a house in Jersey. I have a nice life. Yeah. You know? And there's people now who started after me who do have things that they're still pissed about and to fight about. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here and fake the fights that I used to have mm-hmm. when I'm, they're not as much like fire in my guts anymore? Why? Like, there's artists now who are, angry about stuff they need the oxygen i used to take up and there's i gotta have some humility and admit that too you know like yeah, you gotta be point. humble and be like there's only so much room for people and like if i tried to be like i'm still the pissed outsider underdog public access guy i'd be faking it 
Yeah. But there's people who are younger than me right now who are comedians who have their own struggles or especially people who don't look like me, you know? Yeah. So many comedians now who are, there's so many more women in comedy than when I came up in New York. When I started, you could count the gay queer comedians on two hands. Yeah. Now it's a whole scene. It's a whole movement. And I sit here and I go, I don't have any right to take up oxygen in the scene of like young troublemaking rabble rousing comedians anymore. I'm a 43 year old dad who lives in the suburbs. Like mm. I can be supportive and I can still be a part of it and I can still try to do my shows and sell tickets and have a career. But as far as the people who are really like rattling chains, yeah, people who have fights to fight right now and I got to get, th- I got to get out of their way. Mm. I can't try yeah. to hang on to some sense of relevance that I had five years ago. Who cares? Yeah. It's a new chapter for you, man. Yeah. Family. It's awesome. Yeah. Like you, you consider yourself an optimist or pessimist? It's a really tough question. <laughs> well, I think, I think actually a lot of my experience with therapy and a lot of learning who I was was learning how to uh, let the cynicism and the pessimism go and try to replace it with hope, you know? Really. Yeah. Also, I, I, I'm at a very weird... I was born in 1980, so like my older brother and a lot of his friends were like that cynical Gen X sense of humor. Like everything was sarcastic. Everything yeah. was cynical, you know? Oh, yeah. Everything too Ball was brain. like, also was like that thing of like, oh, there's this TV show and people going like, well, prove to me why I should like it. Oh, there's this new band. Their CD is great. Prove to me why I should like, why should I let that? It's like, and then <laughs> I, I, I kind of, I kind of am at the tail end of Gen X, but the beginning of a millennial too, where I had to opt into the millennial thing, which was like, this song is good and I'm just going to like it because it's catchy. Mm-hmm. And if I find out a reason to not like it, then I'll not like it. If I find True. out the artist is an asshole, but not not this gatekeeping thing that the yeah. older guys yeah, around me always had. Oh, yeah. So much of my life was like, strip away some of the anger and the distrust and the cynicism and the gatekeeping and having your guard up and just mm-hmm. like have some faith that on a fundamental level, people are good. One of my, actually, you want to talk about regret. One of my big regrets was this thing that changed my life. And I don't remember who said it to me. I regret so hardcore. Someone once said to me when I was in my mid-20s and I was really struggling with stuff and there was a lot of anger in me. Somebody said to me, like, you know, like, people will surprise you, man, but you have to let them. And that, like, Mm. got through to me when I was at an age where I was ready to grow up a little bit. And it really, I was like, I have to take a breath and not have my guard up all the time mm-hmm. and not like assume the worst of people. And then, oh, yeah. you yeah. know, so many people where it'd be like, I became friends with them where I think back, I'd be like, oh, when I first met you, I didn't like the looks of you. And that was my thing. Like hold people away. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, no. We got to start from a point of like, let people in. Mm-hmm. Assume people are good. Open arms. And yeah. Totally and if that proves reason. to not be the case, then you can phase For them sure. out or reject them. But why start from a place where people have to like penetrate this armor yeah. to get in? Yeah. I spent way too many years hanging on to that attitude. That's punk rock attitude. There was yeah. a lot of that. A lot of people, mohawks. There was a lot of that. Every The look was to, I got to look hard and you got to push past this look to really know who I am. Mm. Yeah. Like a shield. And yeah. I understand yeah. where it came shield. from, but I wonder if you guys would agree too. There's this very pleasant, th- like a handful of years ago, when I like started getting back into the DIY stuff through my TV show, I started to realize that like the DIY spaces that were doing those shows, they all had this mentality of like, hey everybody, this is a safe space. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's welcome here. 100%. 
And I think back to shows where I'm like, when I was a kid, it didn't feel, it felt gatekeeping. It felt like, why do you deserve to be here? Mm -hmm. That whole thing of like, are you just some kid who found, did you just find Green Day on MTV and now you're trying to show up at a local show? And people would give you a hard time, you know? Or like, this idea of shows being safe. I'm like, no skinheads used to beat us. Like, the Bergen County youth crew used to show up and do the wall of death and they were trying to trample you. Like, you'd have to run away. It wasn't physically safe. It wasn't emotionally safe. And I, I, I am so, so thrilled that the punk scene turned that corner because it's just yeah. such a better thing to be like, if you're a misfit or a weirdo or That's you found this, mm-hmm. you have a home here. And 100%. you'll get rejected if you're an asshole. But like, yeah. it seems like the starting point now is so much less of like, you have to prove that you belong. 100%. It's a beautiful thing. It is. And, and when we came around, it was like a place it, for misfits. And then later on, it did DC get, seemed like it had oh, that yeah, then it got much really, earlier than it got really else. violent in the 90s. Yep. It got really violent. And yeah. the dancing The Boston was, guys were the really nuts hardcore guys, right? I mean, back in the day, Boston versus New York and DC, there was yeah. like all the different generations had their own style of dancing, yeah. whether it was more aggressive or violent. But the early 90s, mid 90s, it got really crazy. You know what I mean? Like mm. really intense and violent. But it was. It is a place to go and be yourself and express yourself and not get picked on and yeah. you know what I mean. It's beautiful, man. It is. It's like a much gentler, more beautiful version. And there's of so it. many hardcore bands now that scenes alive everywhere in the whole world right now. Yeah, it's so really You cool. listen to new bands and stuff and new music. I listen to some like I just like I mean just like everybody who likes punk rock. Turnstile came out of yes. Baltimore with the heart where you're like yes. They call themselves a hardcore. I'm listening. I'm like this feels like art. This feels like art rock stuff. But mm-hmm. I guess it is also hardcore. hardcore. Like, it's, got, it's got everything. <laughs> Fucking cool, yeah. you know. And then I'm lucky too. My wife has really impeccable uh, taste. She's always finding new music, so okay. I get to, I get to just ride her coattails. Okay. But, uh, there's like this French band right now called Les Lulis. I think they're called, and I really like them. Mm-hmm. Um, Illuminati Hotties, they're like a. I never heard of that. They're a uh, uh, female fronted band, I think from LA. They're great lately. That's like, awesome. Yeah, I'm always always dabbling with new stuff. And you going to shows still? I go to some shows. It's hard with the kid. Yeah, of course. It's hard with the kid. Um, my wife did. My wife had a very nice thought a few years ago. She was like, "We got to start seeing some of the like rock and roll legends because they're all going to start dying." Oh yeah. So we've seen like. We saw Springsteen on Broadway. We saw Bob Dylan. We saw Paul Simon's last show at MSG. We nice. saw Tom Petty before he died. Ooh. We're about to go see The Cure. I've never seen The We're Cure. We're about to see The Cure out here too next month. Yeah. yeah. Hallie snagged tickets to The Cure, I think at MSG. Damn. Um, so we've been Mode. seeing a lot of that. Yeah, we saw Depeche Mode at Bar- Barclays Center a couple <laughs> years ago. Awesome. Um, so we've been seeing some of the legends. And then I just like, the Ergs are playing in Asbury Park. That band <laughs> I met, they're playing in May. And they're, do you guys know the Marked Men from Texas? Mm-mm. Oh. You would love the Marked Men. They've been okay. around forever. Okay. I'll check them out. They're yeah. really interesting, man. They've been around forever. They broke up for a long time. They're back now. They have this very distinct, it's like punk rock, but definitely sort of like, almost like Rocket from the Crip rock and roll style like punk too. rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they, I think, put all their lyrics through like Tascam cassette recorders. It just sounds fucking cool. Mm. And awesome. it's like they have all these great albums. And I realized at one point, like, one of the only rules of life that I maintain is true is the third track on any Marked Men album is going to be the best song you hear that year. <laughs> For some reason, all of their track threes are the fucking bangers. Best. I don't know if that's intentional or just luck. What's this Jersey album you're part of? That sorry, like you may be hosting oh, a compilation with different Jersey. So bands? that's another pandemic thing where uh, there Chase was apart vision. So uh, there was this scene called NJPP, and that was like Humble Beginnings, which Gabe from Midtown. He was the bassist in Humble Beginnings. 
bunch of other bands. Big Wig was another band you probably Big crossed yeah, paths yeah, with. Yeah, Big they yeah, were tangentially a part of that. They were like the big ones to come out of it. But there were a lot of small Jersey bands. And a lot of those guys are all still in touch. And there's this dude, he runs a great podcast called This Was The Scene. This mm. guy, Mike, who was in a band called Lane Meyer. And it's just all about that Jersey scene from when I gotcha. was in high school. Mm. And uh, they all found out that I used to be at those shows. And like constantly and i was this quiet kid and i was like i put out this fanzine and some of them like i remember that fanzine it was funny and i was like so my best friend put out this comp and i was the one who sold the comp at the merch tables and they were like all our bands were on that the exit six records comp the bob ross and they were like oh you're for real you were really around i was like i was around i saw all of your bands play that's amazing and then i i uh they came to really i told them it's way too long and i know we're going late but (laughs) I used to fuck with a bunch of these bands on the internet. On what? Our, you were a troll? I started trolling them in college. Oh, Early no. troll. Well, <laughs> I had a what message board it was. There, well, I there, fucking hated the message board. There was a things. stretch where uh, every band had a website, and the website had what was called a guest book on yes. it. Yes. Yeah. You could go on like Angel yeah. Fire and make your own website. And I had a friend who I met on the internet in an Andy Kaufman news group. And he lived in Hawaii, and I'd never met him in person, and he was really brilliant and funny, but very, very weird. And to make me laugh, he would go on to Jersey Ben's guest books and like, leave these very strange messages under this name, Some Kid. This like, mysterious name. And he had a Some Kid website with a fake picture. Ugh. And one of the bands took offense to it. And we really weren't at first trying to mess with them too bad. He was just being a weirdo. What band you that. liked? This band I had seen a dozen times, Lane Meyer. Oh my like God. one of the top two or three bands from this little micro scene. In they obviously Jersey. know it's you by now, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this band, Lane Meyer, was like, hey, you're being a weirdo on all the guest books. Like, just fuck off, dude. And as soon as he saw it, he was like, why don't you fuck off? And they'd be like, come to our show. And then he'd do a thing where he'd be like, so tell me some things about this venue. And I'd be like, all right, they're playing at the Boot and Elks Lodge and it's on this shit. I've been there. Oh, you and were he, feeding them information. And then, dude, he'd be in Hawaii and he'd be like, so I'm going to show up uh, and I'm here's where I'm eating and he'd drop the name of a restaurant near the venue. Before the show, I'll be eating there and then I'm going to the show. Oh. And after your second song, I'm going to walk up and I'm going to grab one of the mics and if you want to say this shit to my face, we can have it right there. Fucking Stone Cold versus The Rock style, motherfucker. And they'd be like, all right, some kid. And dude, then I'd go to the shows. Would you see him like? I'll be tensed up, dude. The whole crowd beforehand would be like, "Some kid here? Anybody seen some kid? Where's some kid?" Because there was this picture. <laughs> dude, he went to a random library in Hawaii and took out the high school yearbook from the library and just found this picture of this kid. It was this like chubby kid who had frosted tips in his hair. This random person, dude. This random kid who had Aww. to this day has no idea any of this happened. Catfishing too. They'd be like, "Anybody see fucking some kid?" This, and I'd be standing there, I'd be like. And then, oh, dude, and then one time I'm at a Lane Meyer show and the guy gets on a, a, a mic. He's like, some kid, because I'd also be, they'd go on the guest book and be like, some kid, you didn't show, you're fucking scared. You talk shit and then you're scared. Mm. And then I'd tell my buddy, like, here's what happened at the show. And he'd be like, actually, I was here's, the, here's the first song you played. You covered fucking this U2 song. You said this in between tracks four and five about me. And they'd be like, fuck, he was there. We fucking <sighs> missed him and this and that. And for like a summer in New Jersey in the pop punk scene, it became this thing. Oh, and at one point, I was I was friends with these guys in a band named Shorty. I wound up living with one of them in college. And I was at this guy's house. And I'm there with the members of the band. And they're all like, I'm sitting there. And they're all like, dude, like, I don't want to play shows with Lane Meyer right now. Because like, if this kid shows up, they're gonna if they find out who it is, they're going to like break his bones. Like, 
I think it's serious. I think this guy, whoever the fuck is doing this, is gonna get no fucking. And I'm the one doing it. I'm sitting there listening to it, and I stop. I I told my buddy CT, I was like, "We gotta stop. I think it's actually turning into a thing where I might get killed if anybody finds out I'm a part. Like you're in fucking Hawaii. You have three thousand miles of continent and an ocean. You haven't even met this guy either, dude. I'd never met him in real life. We just had this friendship where we talk on the phone and fuck around and. It was like some of my early attempts at comedy too, you know? I was like trying to be creative and it got out of control. So I went on the This Was The Scene podcast. So they're doing a show in May in Jersey where a bunch of the guys from these bands are all hanging out and playing each other's songs and they asked me if I'd come headline as a comedian and I was like, I owe you that. I owe you that. We talk sure. about it on stage, you think? About being some kid? We'll see if anybody cares, but yeah, they, <laughs> all, they all heard about that and they were like, and there were like a most of them were like, I don't remember this at all. And then four or five of the guys in this message group were like, that was, I've wondered for 20 fucking years who that was. <laughs> Dude. Yeah, man. Wow. I trolled the North Jersey punk scene for a summer and it, it almost ended badly. <laughs> oh, I started yeah. hearing like good hearted people saying like, we might need to like back out of that show. Cause I don't want to be there if that's the show where somebody gets fucking hurt. Oh my I was God. like, Oh, sitting like on the same couch. Like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's damn. The call, my, calling my buddy that night and being like, "Seriously, stay. Don't, don't, please." Yeah, don't say that shit. That is fucking Leave crazy. It alone. That's like a, yeah. that's some catfish. Because it was not hard to set off punks. In no, the hell no. It wasn't hard to give. So punks. sensitive. They, all they wanted was a reason to fight. You yeah, know? Uh-huh. and yeah. super sensitive too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is the most random ending of the, of the pod, but. Were you in Iron Man 3 and uncredited? I got cut from Iron Man 3. It was heartbreaking. Because I grew up obsessed with Marvel comics. Now I have my son obsessed with Marvel comics. Filmed filmed all my scenes with Don Cheadle. (gasps) All this shit too. I was a scientist and they were like, wave your fingers like this and we're going to do all like the 3D animation of the fucking crazy Iron Man computers. And they cut it. Bro. Killer. I still get residual. I'll get a check for like 35 cents from Disney every (laughs) few months. (laughs) How long was your scene going to be? It was going to be the opening scene of Iron Man 3. Oh, my God. It was going to be this. You know how he, because Don Cheadle was War Machine, and then they changed the name. It was the whole thing was I was the scientist that was helping Tim come up with, like, the new name and new technology and new costume. It would have been so fucking awesome. And you were in two episodes of The Office, too? Yeah. That's sick. Yeah, season nine, after Corral left, but... Still I get asked more about the, I get stopped and recognized from the office more than anything else and yeah. I, d- I hosted a TV show that was called the Chris Gethard show for yeah. three years on cable <laughs> yeah. nobody saw it but the office yeah. people recognize you from that I can't Im- the people who were on the office from like day one for all the seasons I can't imagine what their lives are like because oh, the yeah. amount I get stopped I'm like oh those people can't walk down the street like, so that's the most you get recognized Jim. for is from the office by far that and then wow. like anywhere in America it's the office on the coast, it's also Broad City because that was a little mm-hmm. bit more of like a hip. It's yeah. like a New York City hipster show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm in New York or L.A., Broad City, but Middle America, The Office, damn, all the oh, time. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Ange- Angela Kinsey is super sweet. She's yeah, very nice. I did my scenes with her. She was so yeah, nice. She's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck me, I really appreciate you being here, man. Hearing your story. Thanks for letting me ramble. I'm sorry no, if I talked too much. I was just man. so excited to do it. And, Dude, uh, it's an honor to have to you. Bring it full circle again. Like the main reason I wanted to be here. If anybody's bored by me, that's fine. I can take it. But like, I needed to let you know how much it meant to me that you uh, cut through the bullshit and asked me if I was okay all those years ago because I wasn't okay back then, and you were yeah. the first person to check in on it. 
I'm glad you're okay now. Yeah, doing better. Doing, Still have my ups and downs. I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, man. It's uh, it's honored to meet you too, and I'm stoked on your journey, everything you accomplished, and oh, making the, the world best. laugh and helping people too, getting through their their anxiety and their depression too. Did my best, and now the young bucks got to take the torch, and I'm just gonna tell dad jokes. I yeah. need the young people <laughs> to say some relevant shit because I just am gonna talk about my son now. So and people can find you on internet, social yeah, media, ChrisGeth.com, and ChrisGeth on Instagram, and ChrisGethard on Twitter, and I'm beautiful. Are you on anonymous. social media a lot? Do you talk to people a lot? Uh, to a degree, yeah. I, I've. Do you respond to DMs or negative some, comments? Sometimes I respond to DMs, but sometimes, especially since my son was born, I try to create a few more boundaries. Yeah. I used to be very, very interactive on it. Mm-hmm. Had a couple situations that got scary. We're like, I'm sure you've like run threats? into this as well. No, well, you. I'm sure you've run into this as well. Like, when you make a portion of your work about mental illness mm-hmm. and you try to. Just create a conversation about it you also attract some mentally ill people yes mm-hmm. and i'm very happy that i've been able to help some people yes i've also had some situations where i go this doesn't totally feel safe anymore mm-hmm. and it's made me pull back a little from social media in general it's really just like while my son is young yes i felt like i gotta pull back and be a little more private yeah i, yeah. I can't you know there was a, a stretch where i was like i can't I got to be a little quiet about my location, you mm. know, like one of those totally. situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was sure. just like, and you think about that. I used to have that back when I was on public access because my show was weird. And I used to, you know, somebody ordered a t-shirt and had my return address on it. I was yeah. small potato. I, like now the idea of like some, like I used to laugh. People would be like, dude, this is your real return address. Like what if somebody who's crazy knocks on the door? I'd be like, I'll probably put them on the show. Let's figure it out and, mm-hmm. and laugh about it. Now I'm like, no. I got some intense fans. I'm very blessed to have them, but also like, what if they show up with yeah, a weapon? Yeah, I can't. I can't. I've had a couple situations where I'm like, I got to pull back. So mm-hmm. not as interactive as I used to be, and I do feel bad about that. We have a new yeah. special too. I mean, last one was Career Suicide, right? HBO 2017. I, yeah, I did that one, and then I did. We was talking about that one earlier. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was on HBO. Then I did one called Half My Life, yeah. where I went to nine different, nine or ten different. 2021. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of different venues, and we had like some travel footage in between, and I wanted to show. I do a lot of like music venues and DIY venues to this day. I love that. And a lot of times my fans will come and they'll be like middle-aged people who have never stepped foot in a place like that. So I wanted to show off some of those venues. You grew up and, going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then the next one will be uh, A Father and the Son. And that'll be out on Audible sometime this year. I think in a couple months. Nice. Yeah, and I'm doing a beautiful anonymous fan festival in May, but I don't know if people hear what this is that? before then. Oh, we, like you live podcast. Yeah, well, I'm doing... um. A festival with anonymous fans? Well, there's going to be a whole thing. We're going to do a bunch of live tapings of the show, these comedy shows with Killer Bills, uh, some live music from the band that, this band Shell Shag, great New York duo that plays the theme song to my podcast, movie screenings, a big event where you can meet all these past callers who are like de-anonymizing themselves. You wow. can come. We're almost going to set up like a science fair where they're each going to have a table. You can walk around, meet all these people you've heard on the show. That's cool, wow. man. One of the, we had a caller who lost her daughter to cancer. We're gonna do a benefit show for her. All the money from that one's going to the yeah. March of Dime, or, um, um, Make a Wish. Yep. Nice. Um, so we're just trying to blow it out. It's May fourth through seventh. So I, either you will hear this first and come to it, or you can um, hear about it afterwards. But yeah, just trying to do some good. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. 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 Anything else you want to add, Rusty Pistachio? Um, total random question, <laughs> not related to any of this, because. Put my closer, Russ, because your voice. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite pizza spot in Jersey? Wow, dude, 
Jersey, I like that you're asking that because Jersey That's, quietly, I don't want to piss off New Yorkers here. It's true. They got really good pizza. Jersey really stands toe to toe. There's actually, I mean, there's a lot of really great places. I grew up going to a place in Orange called the Star Tavern, which does what's called a bar pie, which is like cracker crust, like cracker thin crust. Mm-hmm. Star Tavern historically is amazing. There's also a new place in Morristown called Coniglio's, and they have been crushing it. They've been around less than a year. But it's insanely hmm. good pizza. And apparently, you know DeFaro's in Brooklyn, the mm-hmm. famous guy? Apparently, the guy who runs Coniglio's is the only person to officially apprentice under Dom DeMarco from DeFaro's. Nice. So that spot has been catching a lot of buzz. And I've been there, I think, three times. And it it Kill. exceeds the hype. Oh. The hype is real. Are you, are you yeah. a coffee guy? I'm not a coffee guy, no. Wow. Because I thought it would be a good question for Rusty. So I'm glad, I'm glad you don't I fuck with coffee at all. No. Tea? Do tea? I do tea sometimes, yeah. But yeah, coffee. He's a coffee connoisseur. Coffee makes my stomach go nuts. Me too, man. Me too. There's actually this punk, this weird, weirdo artist punk DIY guy named John Kaz in New Jersey, and he roasts his own coffee beans and has a company called Kaz Coffee. So I got to shout out my Jersey punk uh, guy. Okay. He's, like a, nice. he's like a punk musician skater guy. And he brew, he, he roasts coffee? his own coffee. Yeah, yeah. I have tasted it. And my wife is a coffee drinker and she likes okay. it too. So Cos Coffee, baby, New Jersey's own. Always yeah. gotta support the Jersey punks. But coffee makes you stomach and jittery and shittery. Yeah. And all I got that. so much anxiety that when you throw coffee me. on top of it, oh, I yeah. just It'll spend my whole I spend my whole up, day bro. on the toilet. It's like a crazy drug for me that yeah. I can't, can't do it. Can't. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Fuck. I can't, I'm going to see you perform someday, man. Yeah. I look out for your come dates. Through. Let me know when you guys come through Jersey or New York. I mean, I can't imagine. When you guys play New York, it's still nuts, right? We're playing there with Gorilla Biscuit September 8th in Brooklyn. Save the date. I just what, announced what on venue? the podcast, Monarch in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Yeah, H2OGB September 8th. You got to come. Yeah. Babysitter Fidance. You know, you know, you know Ian Fidance? <laughs> yeah. He's going to come and sing Freddie Madball's part. Oh, that's awesome. We're guilty by association. You guys in Gorilla Biscuits in Brooklyn, is gonna. that's going to be... And we're playing Mayhem. Jersey too. I can find out where. Yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe House of Dependence. Oh yeah. That's where the Ergs and Mark Markman. Oh, dude. Th- two of my favorite venues. Great venues. Dude. Crossroads. That guy Andy Diamond. Who runs, I was talking to him today. What Andy, a lovable yeah. maniac uh, of a man. Crossroads. So down up the street from Crossroads, we'll swing. We'll swing it back to the pizza. Oh yeah. <laughs> they got that. Fa- um, is it no, uh, Nola's? We went, to, we went to. We went straight to it. Yeah. Nola's. I think yeah, yeah Nola's. I think it might be Nola's, Nola's in Garwood. I brought pizza back um, to the venue because yeah, because I heard I was like, yeah, this is a great spot. So I go in to order pizza, and while I'm there, the guy comes out, waits on a super sweet. Um, within five ten minutes, the the whole kitchen goes into chaos. One guy's picking up like a pizza pizza slicer, and he's waving it. Another guy's picking up. It looks like a pickaxe. Oh, it's a fight. It's a beef. total fight. Oh, really? Oh, shit. All, all in Italian. And Amazing. I was like, yeah, this reminds Jersey, me of my baby. family. So it was kind of cool. Well, <laughs> that place is great. There's that. I'm fairly certain it's Nola's and Garwood. If you do Asbury Park, there's Porta, which is great pizza, yeah, and Tallulah's, which Tallulah's is Tallulah's, yeah, Tallulah's right next to House of Independence. Yeah, that place so is great. We, um, okay. It's just um, food great. <laughs> I'll give him a no. I don't. I don't want to end it on a negative. Yeah, you can't do that, Rusty. Nope. Joe Vasia, turn fucking Rusty's mic up when you hear this episode. Turn my mic up. <laughs> Rusty talks. Rusty, thank yes. you for being here. Okay. Yes, Tallulah's what a joy. Great food. Great yeah. food. And thank you guys. Thank you for having me. Dude, thank for you, man. Making your songs and introducing me to the Smiths and for looking out for a sad kid back in the day. It's really, uh, dude. It's great. To, it's awesome. great to finally meet you, man, yeah. in person. Yeah. Heard the stories and yeah, really awesome meeting you and connecting. Likewise, likewise. Thank you for your time, Rusty. Well, thank you for being a Chappelle. Yes. Thanks for hanging. And uh, yeah, so cool. Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace. Bye. 
I always ask my guests if they have any regrets. I personally don't have any regrets. Even when it comes to my tattoos, I have the silliest tattoos. Even my ET on my leg, it's still a childhood memory for me, and I love it. I've had tattoos on top of tattoos strictly because I wanted more tattoos. I started getting tattoos when I was 18. I'm 52 now, and I can't stop. I've had lazy treatment before on something on my arm. It's four tattoos on top of each other. And that experience at that place was pretty fast. It was pretty cold. It was in and out, swiped the credit card. Don't really tell me much. Didn't give me much details or anything was going to happen. So I never went back. So as of most recently, I'm so lucky enough to have had two sessions at Removery Tattoo Removal. My tattoo on my arm that looks like a big black blob is now super light. I've had two sessions. I have a long road ahead of me. None of this stuff happens overnight. You cannot take a tattoo up in one sitting. You have to be patient. And it's painful. They ice you up. It's super fast. To me, it felt like a bunch of rubber bands. But what's more painful than that is looking at something on your body that you think you're stuck with for the rest of your life. That sucks. But now for me, I'm really happy I started this journey. I'm slowly going to get this tattoo removed. I never thought in a million years I have any kind of real estate on my arm. I don't even know what I want, but it's exciting. I'm so honored to announce that One Life, One Chance podcast is now with Removery. I have a code. Use TobyH20 and get $100 off your first session. Call 866-934-4570 or go to Removery.com. One of the most experienced tattoo remover companies in the world. Over 600,000 removal treatments done. 100 locations. U.S., Canada, and Australia. State-of-the-art peak-away laser technology. Cryotechnology to reduce any discomfort. This is so exciting for me because all I do on these podcasts is talk about tattoos. From day one, if you've been listening to this podcast, we talk about tattoos, talk about getting removed, talk about getting covered up. So this is such a perfect fit for me. Once again, go to removery.com or call 866-934-4570. Use my code TOBYH20 and get $100 off. These guys are located everywhere. Try it out.